You could describe proof of stake in two words. Shareholders vote. And guess what? That is how the world works already. I want to build a system that at least has the potential to be democratizing, the move towards decentralization, censorship resistance, these properties that we care so much about. And I think proof of stake is, is a huge step in the wrong direction. Hello there. How are you all? Are you having a good week? Um, just want to say thank you to everyone who sent me an email, DM, or a tweet, wishing me happy birthday. Also got some presents, which is very kind, so thank you for that. I'm feeling very old. And interestingly, we are just a couple of weeks away from the podcast being five years old, which I can't believe. Looks like we'll have done 30 million downloads in the first five years, which is pretty incredible. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got quite an interesting topic, and I've got Nick Carter and Lane Rettick both back on the show together to discuss this. Okay, we're going to be talking about the Ethereum merge, and Nick and Lane were probably the two people I wanted most on to get on and discuss this. And I know some of you will be like, why are you covering this? Ethereum is a shitcoin. Is this what shitcoin did? Okay, I've talked about this before. I've explained it a bunch of times. I will always cover an altcoin if I think it gives us a lesson as a Bitcoiner to the future development or use of Bitcoin. I think that's an important thing to do. And as we are seeing arguments coming in from mainstream media and some politicians using the narrative of proof of work being better for the environment, proof of stake and yada yada... I know this is a topic that is important for us to cover. It's important for us to understand why proof-of-work is a better system, it's a better consensus mechanism than proof-of-stake. The noise of increasing censorship on Ethereum has also been growing. So this is another thing which I think is important to discuss. And Nick and Lane provided the details of why this has happened. And importantly, we discuss if and how Bitcoin could potentially suffer the same fate in the future. So if you've got any questions about this or any points you want to make, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I do reply to everyone. Sometimes it takes me a few days because quite a few messages come in. But I do reply. It is me. It isn't Danny. It isn't a bot. It's me staying up late or getting up early and replying to these emails. All right. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Let's get on to Nick and Lane. Welcome, Nick. Welcome, Lane. How are you both? Hello. Good to be here. Good. With you both. Lane has traveled a great distance to be here. Very far. Where have you come from? Home. It's not that far, but... I, well. I came 15 minutes. Come on, man. We've come the most. Danny, Danny's come from the other side of the yeah, whole planet. I think planet. Danny wins Thank pretty you. much always Thank you. in this count. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for making me your number one most featured guest. Is that it? On Is that right? Yeah, on, 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 the, on a Bitcoin show. Well, I mean, how does it work? If you exclude the Lynn, because she's Lynn, like, I was she say, gets a yeah. monthly slot. We love slot. Lynn, but she doesn't count because she was like part of the show. She was a monthly slot, but as somebody who has just invited every time I want to talk to them, yes. And you still talk to me even though I have been canceled. Well, so I've got the, uh, the, the canceled Bitcoiner and the canceled Ethereum guy. Yeah, this is we, we realized this recently when we were catching up. It's a nice symmetry. It's we're actually the, switching sides. Yeah. I, I'll probably get cancelled for making this show. Uh, no, of course. Um, but you know you're doing the right thing when both sides kind of hate you. Yeah. Right? If you're not pissing someone off, you're doing something wrong, we, basically. We've pissed everyone off. Yeah. Well, we, Good thing we have each other. because that's, you know. that's all we got left. <laughs> well, Nick, you're my friend, so I don't give up. As long as you... Like haven't done anything super bad. Like you would stay my friend. I'm still going to talk Thank to you. you. You're still one of the smartest people I know. Uh, I don't give a fuck what other people think. Uh, I'd, I'd always talk to you because um, if if we weren't making the show, I'd call you up and say let's get dinner. But when I am here, you've always got so much smart shit to say. I want to talk to you. 
I don't care what you're doing in ETH. It's a book on show, and that's what I'm focused on. And even your paper recently showed that you you offer so much value. So yeah, I mean, I just don't care. Like you're here for thank you multiple Peter. reasons. Lane's here for multiple reasons. Also counselled by the ETH community, uh, also a friend, and also someone I like talking to. I I think you can get a lot of value from people who aren't within your. Actually, I think you get more sometimes more value from yeah. people who aren't within your cohort because you get to challenge things. So yeah, whatever. Uh, if we're going to make a show discussing proof of work versus proof of stake, for me, I don't care about the value in proof of stake. I care about the value in proof of work. And if I learn about that uh, and by comparing it to Ethereum, that's great. And who better to talk to than one of the best writers on Bitcoin and somebody who like has spent so much time explaining to me everything that's fucked with Ethereum. And there's more now. So there's more now. We're going to have fun with that today. And so yeah, yeah. And we're post merge. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions about that first, but but let's get into well. Why Why is it important? You wanted to make this show. You reached out to me and said, look, let's make a show on this. Like, did I? Well, one I think it did. might have been my idea. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, for me, always understanding the value of proof of work is useful. We've been hit with a bunch more FUD since Ether's uh, completed the merge uh, from the press, from the World Economic Forum, from mainstream media, from ETH heads, from crypto people who've suddenly used this as an attack vector against Bitcoin which to me is fucking ridiculous. So uh, sometimes my, people might be surprised you as an ETH guy, also involved in proof of stake work, wants to talk about this. Yeah, They assume because uh, you've done work on other ecosystems, you're not a Bitcoiner, but you are a Bitcoiner. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoiner first. Um, you know, actually, fun Shit fact. a second. <laughs> second and always. Danny, is this the first time we've had two shitcoiners on the show? Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, you are really increasing the cancellation risk here. No. <laughs> um, no, look, the, first, the very first project I worked on in the Ethereum ecosystem at the Ethereum Foundation in 2017 was proof of stake, was the merge. And so, you know, I had a lot of questions about it you know, both leading up to and now now in the wake of, of the merge itself, you know, people asking what I think and how I thought it would go and how it went. Um, I'm really of two minds about it. You know, on the one hand, I think it's really, it's good that it happened. Um, I think it f even further contrast, it drives home the contrast between Bitcoin and Ethereum. They're even more okay. different now, right? And I think um, maybe one of the reasons that Nick was excited to talk about this topic is because it gives us even more... Um, uh, ground to stand on when we talk about why proof of work matters, why it's important, why Bitcoin is different in that way. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you and I spoke about the reasons I have my reservations about proof of stake, like they all still exist. But um, yeah, look, I mean, more information is better. We have, you know, orders of magnitude more information about proof of stake now than we did. We were just speculating when we spoke about it a year or two ago. And now it's like running and blocks are being produced. And like Nick and I were looking at the numbers on the way over here. Um, so we can talk in much more concrete terms, which I think is like a more productive conversation. Can I tell you something that stood out to me with the merge is that um, the day after, the the world hadn't ended. Right. Uh, Ethereum hadn't blown up, which, you know, not that I wanted it to, but like I expected something super bad or terrible to happen and some kind of collapse. And it was back to normal. Uh, DeFi platforms were getting hacked. Money was getting stolen. In retrospect, I think... The most remarkable thing about the merge is how unremarkable it was. Yeah. Like you said, like I, I was, I stayed up. It happened like kind of 2 a.m. here on like a Wednesday night or something, the night of September 15th. And like, yeah, just happened, you know, the, 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 the rollover happened. The, the first, you know, block and the first epoch was, was, was justified and finalized. And it was like, okay, like get on with our lives. Um, I think 
no matter what you think about Ethereum, no matter what you think about proof of work, and we'll get into you know to that. Uh, you have to respect the engineering work that went into this because it was legitimately like a really epic project, and the fact that it um, that it happened so seamlessly, I think, is, is remarkable. But after, it, after all those years of work, it, but isn't it design choices that required some such epic engineering? Yeah, that's fair. I guess I guess that's not required in Bitcoin because it's not changing in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but you know, look again. Other things being equal, I'm not saying other things are equal. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, if if you imagine other things are equal, the fact that Ethereum is using 99% less energy than it was the day before. Can I address something though? Um, Justin Drake and Vitalik and many Ethereans claimed that Ethereum's merge reduced global electricity consumption by 20 basis points, 0.2%. I saw that number. That is false. That's false. Why? Because all those ASICs started mining Ethereum Classic. So, partially, that's part of the answer. Another part of the answer is they're relying on figures from Digiconomist for the energy consumption. Uh, it was by my count and by the counts of uh, ETH miners I talked to and other academic uh, researchers, it was more like uh, eight basis points in the first place. So, uh, about a third of the, the claimed figure. And then also, some of those GPUs... We're not just thrown away. Some of them were thrown away. Yeah. But the high-end GPUs, yeah. the NVIDIAs, they're now out there churning away, running AI models. They're running stable diffusion. I can attest to this. I'm actually an investor in a startup that does this. Like they were mining ETH, now they're running stable diffusion, right? So the electricity consumption didn't go away. It's just they were repurposed to other tasks. So, you know, at most it's seven basis points, but most likely it's not all that because a lot of those GPUs are still in action. I think there's no uh, honest conversation to have about a reduction in energy usage that has any material effect on, on the world. I mean, it's uh, a small, it, whatever it is, it's a small reduction. But yeah. I'm telling you, it's not 20 basis points of global energy consumption. I, I think the primary conversation with the reduction in energy consumption is how it's been used as an attack vector on Bitcoin and it's completely misleading. But I don't see that it's made any material impact on the world. And when you look at the cost trade-off and what you've what it's lost by going to proof of stake... Um, Can we just dig into this a little bit? It's interesting, right? So so there's kind of two ways to look at this. There's, there's the kind of reality, which Nick is speaking to, right? Like yeah. what is the actual uh, on-the-ground like impact on world energy consumption? But I think there's also perception and perception is important as well. And I think... But tell me what you guys think, right? This leaves Bitcoin a little exposed in the sense that our fav- our friends, the politicians and the regulators are going to look at it and say, you know, Ethereum did this thing, right, where they sort of, you know, quote unquote, turned off the power. Uh, Bitcoin needs to do this as well. Like it's it's going to it's going to make Bitcoin less favorable in the eyes of people who are environmentally conscious. That's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, suggest I, you yeah, agree or disagree? No, completely agree. Yeah. From a PR narrative perspective, right. it's very strong and it's very hard to explain to people that Bitcoin can't really right. marshal that right. kind of um, you know momentum around a massive change and that it's built into bitcoin's fabric that it wouldn't make a change it wouldn't like want to this. in the first place right and yeah. if they tried it would be forked and all the old asics would stay mining the but if you look at change. it specifically in this way i just wanted to make this point it is a masterful PR move from a positioning perspective, yes, yes yeah. completely. And, and you know, you have projects it's like it's not like, just PR; it's like actual governments are right. responding to this. Like, right. look at the EU; they're actively trying to ban yeah. proof work. They weren't successful, but they're trying. This is one of the main reasons the world hates crypto so much. Um, there were projects, pretty big projects, like Celo comes to mind, that launched you know an entire chain, a whole ecosystem, raised hundreds of millions of dollars specifically around being carbon neutral. Um, so I think Ethereum's move has kind of stolen their thunder. 
Well, again, I, I think it's misleading, but, you know, I understand, like, the PR side of things right. because I've seen it. I've seen the articles that came out the day, the day after. You know, yeah, there are two, two, two front page articles in the New York Times, two, in yeah. the day following the it's merge. So huge, if you think about it from a, it's a PR. It's a, it's a big win, win right? from, from, yeah, from a And those articles weren't terribly great and they got facts wrong as they always do but yeah well this is why we need to ensure we continue to fund people like the bitcoin policy institute to start writing the articles to try and educate these people and at least offer them some like real fact-based information but the upside as lane says is now we have real data coming out of ethereum proof of stake i mean obviously there were other proof of stake protocols but like ethereum proof of stake is a big one where now we can actually clearly delineate the influence of e- either consensus protocol. It's and the biggest by far, but it's also, we have to, when we, when we compare proof of stake, like Ethereum flavor proof of stake to the others, we have to emphasize that it's really different because it's not delegated proof of stake, right? This is, I, I think, yeah, the I first mean, chain that is really doing it at this large decentralized scale with hundreds of thousands of validators. That hasn't been done before. Yeah, yeah. Other chains that are like proof of stake are basically like consortia yeah. of like a yeah. handful of known named validators. Although you could make the case that Ethereum is too, given the reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get into okay, we'll so, it. But like, look at, look at compared to Binance Smart Chain, just like Binance hits the brakes because something goes wrong. Yeah. That's not really like... Uh, you know, a uh, open uh, consensus uh, system. So, you know? so, and Solano, Solana? Rob, Solano. Solana. Solano. Solano. <laughs> I started calling it Solano because of you. I've forgotten which one it is now because I keep getting it wrong. <laughs> we were not telling Roberto you. Roberto Solano, isn't it? The old footballer who played for, was it Villa? Is, uh, is, is it up today? I fuck knows. We need a, is Solana Yeah, but they have the highest Nakamoto coefficient. Uh, have you seen this? Don't they just turn it on when they, when they need it? <laughs> the, yeah. The, They're saving energy. <laughs> yeah. The, these other ones, these non-Ethereum proof-of-stake chains are more brittle, and they definitely just rely on a smaller consortium of larger well, validators. To be fair, we don't have enough data on Ethereum yet. I mean, this merge just happened less than a month ago. You know, Solana's been running for a couple of years, so like, let's see how stable it is. I mean, the, the Beacon chain has been running, so proof-of-stake has been running since December 2019, so almost two years. Three years? Two years. Beacon chain. The Beacon chain, sorry, December 2020, yeah. So that's by the way, if, if you want to do background story, I mean, it's always it's always helpful to catch people up. No, like, what is proof of stake? How did this whole, all yeah, happen? Right? Yeah. We could we could go over that. that but just one quick, we just don't have much data on on how stable it's going to be, so we'll see. But one quick question that might not have a quick answer is: the, now the merge is done, is the transition done, or are there still parts things have to be done, or it's like ETH two just live now and the whole the, all the old, old stuff's dead? Yeah, this is complicated. The, sort of, I'll I'll try to give you a really brief answer. So. The merge itself is done. Yes. There's nothing else to do on the merge. Um, the Ethereum roadmap has evolved quite a bit. The, the running joke in my days when I was doing Ethereum stuff is that every time Vitalik had a shower, the roadmap would change. Um, it's, I mean, it's not quite that volatile anymore. There's like a pretty agreed upon roadmap forward with five steps, the first of which was the merge. So there's kind of like four more big steps to come. But what but, did the merge do? What 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 was that? The merge step was or? the transition to proof of stake. So okay. it was it was hot swapping out the consensus mechanism from proof of work to proof of stake. That's okay. all it did. Nothing else. And that took three years, uh, eight, seven or eight years of research and four years of development. Wow. Yeah. You, the, you're gonna love the rest of the roadmap because it rhymes. Yes. I can't even get them all right, but <laughs> merge, verge, surge, purge, and I'm forgetting splurge. One. Splurge, right? Of course, the splurge comes last. So it's like the, everything right. in Ethereum Hold is rainbows on. and unicorns and rhymes. I was going to say, is there a song? Don't you love it? And I'm sure go, there's a unicorn dance song. There's a unicorn dance song that they're going to do at the next dressed as fluffy. I'm telling you, the more they I realize this, things, the more though. I realize like Ethereum 
has got its marketing game on lockdown. I like mean, all this a stuff. rhyming roadmap. It's incredible. And well, it's um, and the words mean stuff. Like there, yeah. there's actually like uh, right. There's substance behind it. There really is. Yeah. 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 What's that? What's that book? Uh, a, a, um, something Huxley wrote. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. What's the book he wrote? Brave New, Brave World. New World. Yeah. So that. The, so that's Brave New World. Ethereum is Brave New World, and Bitcoin is 1984. <laughs> <laughs> this is the the utopian and dystopian uh, views of the the future. Yeah. I mean, look, they. And as, as I said to you before, like Ethereum, sometimes it feels like it's defined by unity. There's a lot of unity around things. Whereas so we, we, Bitcoin we, is defined we, by like the, the lack of unity, the fight. We say Ethereum is a big tent and Bitcoin is money for enemies. So I think that's accurate. I agree with that. I think groups look homogenous from the outside and from the inside, they look heterogeneous. So they probably even say if, the same about these? Bitcoiners. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's just like a common sort of like phenomenon. I think the thing about Ethereum as a community, to the extent that such a thing exists, is it is complicated and it is it does feel uh, diverse on the inside because there's all these projects that are Ethereum adjacent. So like is Polygon part of the Ethereum community? Is Near or Polkadot? At least some, some of these projects kind of move in and out of Ethereum's orbit. Um, it's, it's messy. Whereas Bitcoin is Bitcoin, basically. Okay, so we've done the merge. What's next? I don't even know what the next one is. <laughs> I don't either. I'm trying to remember. I, so I think dank sharding is kind of the next thing. Oh, yeah. no, sorry. The first thing is withdrawals. So yeah. So 30-second recap, right? So the Beacon Chain launched in December 2020. Um, all that did was proof of stake, but so, so, so validators could deposit ETH on the main net, the, the existing running Ethereum network, and then... Um, people who wanted to run validators. And then that would give them a validator kind of slot on the beacon chain. Uh, so for whatever number of months that is, 19, 20 months or something, that did its thing, but it's not coming to consensus over anything meaningful. They're just, they're just running and it's just, it's just literally testing the consensus mechanism. Then the merge happened. Um, so now the security of the running Ethereum network has been transferred. As I said, all the proof of work miners have been shut down. That's been transferred to proof of stake. So now the consensus is still running on the beacon chain, but it's now securing something. Um, the next step is and do you have enabling to, withdrawals. Yeah, well, so you have to stake to be a validator? Yes, and exactly. 32, 32 ETH? ETH. Correct, yeah. So that's one validator slot. Um, it's a fixed amount. Um, but yeah, so the next thing is, is, is enabling withdrawals, which is supposed to come in something like six to eight months. So basically, once, once you deposit right yeah. now, right? You cannot withdraw those funds. So they're locked on the beacon chain, right? What you can do, and this is actually, it's interesting, this interesting nuance here, you can um, exit your validator, right? So what that means is that you, like, let's say that you are, we won't, we won't name names, but you're a regulated sort of entity or company who, for whatever reason, like doesn't want to censor, doesn't want to produce like censored blocks. Um, we'll talk about the censorship thing, I think. Uh, your only other option would be to exit your validators and, and stop validating, but you can't actually withdraw the coins. So yet. even if you exit, you can't withdraw. Correct, not yet. But that will be enabled in some number of months from now. And the useful thing would be what the, you know, people don't want to withdraw all the coins, but they want to uh, withdraw the the rewards. The yield that they've generated. Yeah, so this is also complicated. So you can, so there's two components to the to the yield you get when you're a validator. So one is the block rewards or the block subsidy, and the other is the fees, obviously. The fees can be withdrawn because they just land in your regular Ethereum account. Right. But the subsidy, the block subsidy cannot yet. Okay. So what's the complexity around withdrawals? That the funds live on the beacon chain, not on sort of the running Ethereum chain, I guess. So there needs to be some mechanism. So is that a, to, so will both chains continue or will the beacon chain merge into the main chain? To, 
So both chains, so there are now two chains, basically. And you, as a validator, you actually need to run two pieces of infrastructure. So the terms we use are EL and CL. EL is execution layer, CL is consensus layer. I'm it's, glad you're here because I didn't yeah. know any of this shit. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I wasn't following this all super closely for the past couple of years. As you guys know, I have a day job that's not strictly Ethereum related. Um, but I've been catching up on it lately, partly okay. because of the merge, partly because of the show. Uh, partly because DevCon is coming up. I don't want to sound like an idiot. When's DevCon? Uh, next week. So right. I'm actually on my way to Bogota. In Bogota. Yeah, that's going to oh, be nice. It's going to be interesting. The cartels are warming up. Have you got your uh, unicorn outfit? <laughs> I, I mentioned I was We're I was packing for Bogota, this. and it was really hard because I was trying not to bring any any crypto swag or ETH swag, and most of my clothes. You're going to want to have good obsec when you're yeah. down there. Yeah, I mean, of all the places to choose to put a bunch of rich crypto people, let's go to Bogota. Doesn't seem wise. A bunch of teenagers who exactly are crypto, newly crypto wealthy, who've never traveled in Latin America before. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so after withdrawals, what's coming after that? I think the next thing after that is sharding. And this now is getting a little bit Did beyond my expertise. Did you say dank sharding? Yeah, yeah. They rebranded it. I well, think it's because yeah. the name of the uh, Dunk, academic. Dunkrad, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's right. not dank as in cool. It's because it's actually this guy's name. <laughs> but it's also, I guess. <laughs> but that's a cool name. It's a pun, I guess. As with everything. In that's with everything. Okay. And sharding yeah. does what? So the idea of sharding is that... Um, rather than having a single chain where each validator has to validate every transaction on that chain, um, there are now multiple chains and a subset of the validators. So the chains get broken up into sort of subnets. And so you only need to validate a subset of the overall transactions flowing through the network. By the way, sharding is a really old idea. It comes from databases. It's been around for decades. Um, you, you have some method by which you, you split up your transactions and your accounts across different chains. Because... To reduce bloat, to make it To reduce faster. the load on the validators yeah, okay. because, right, you want it to be easy to run a validator, basically. So it sounds like that's probably quite a complicated thing. That's very complicated. It, so the, the plan was originally that that would be um, included in like an earlier phase in the what used to be called the Ethereum 2 roadmap. Okay. And I think dank sharding is like, again, this is getting a bit beyond my expertise, but the original plan was to have something like 1,024 shards or something, and you know they'd all look and feel like Ethereum, and, and the, the scope of this has been reduced considerably. Okay, and there are any risks to sharding in that like parts of the network go offline? Does it make, is it a new attack vector? The biggest issue of sharding is that it breaks composability. Yeah. You want to explain composability? Well, it's just that now the you're, creating, so know what you're it is. literally, you know, splitting the ledger up yeah. from a canonical ledger of record to many different ledgers that need to be reconciled with each other. And now the challenge is, how does a transaction happening on this piece of the ledger talk to, you know, a contract on that piece of the ledger? And composability is like the nice thing about blockchains. That's what makes DeFi work. That gives you the strong having those settlement assurances means you know that these contracts are going to work together. Right. So so I, I agree. I think Ethereum's killer feature is composability, right? So this means that literally in a single transaction, in a single block, you can touch three or four, six or eight different uh, applications, right? And, and compose both in the sense of building blocks of, of code and things like this, but also in the sense of, of assets, right? You can kind of do these wicked arcane kind of transactions that, you know, take a flash loan here and do something over there and then like return the flash loan at the end. Um, that is the thing that was never possible before Ethereum and is only possible on Ethereum or, or a system like it, right, where, where you don't have shards today. Um, and, and I'm specifically referring to how things work in the Web2 world, where you have APIs and asynchronous calls and, and, and like you have this thing called the train and hotel problem, which is like I want to book, you know, a train ticket and a hotel. But if for whatever reason I can't 
the, the train reservation doesn't get made, I don't want the hotel. And if the hotel reservation doesn't get made, I don't want the train. So we want these things to be bundled as a single kind of atomic operation. So it's all or, or nothing. This is called atomicity in computer science. Um, and the moment you move to a sharded model, as Nick was mentioning, you have these multiple domains. And now you have these very, very, very complex asynchronous tools as a software developer that you need where you like, you have to fire off a thing and sit around and wait for it to come back and maybe it'll fail and then you have to revert the first thing. So it just makes writing applications and, and using them much harder. Hold on. So the okay, so this needs to be solved by the coders built in the application. This can't be solved. This, this is solve a fundamental trick. Yeah, it can't be solved. Inher- it's the problem with legacy payments is so, they exactly. aren't composable. So what this is this by the way, this is why you have things like like a two or three day settlement period, right? Yeah, because this it, is exactly it's why. It's why interchange exists with credit cards, like right. it's why fraud risks exist. It's because legacy payments aren't composable. Okay, so what's it gonna break on Ethereum? It's gonna break something. The whole premise in DeFi. Yeah. In a nutshell. DeFi. Yeah. Okay. So why so does that mean it's not going to happen, or is this a big debate? I think it'll come down to it, and they'll walk back from the brink and not go the short. Would you model. say Ethereum is on the brink? <laughs> I mean, it, other smart contract chains are selling against this, right? So, exactly. like Solana's whole thing is they're going for composability. They're right. not going for the sharding model. And then you have chains like Near that that have already deployed the sharding and. I don't think it's super popular. I don't think there's been a ton of uptake. Uh, I want to make one other point. Yeah, which but hold is, on. If it breaks smart contracts... Composability. Composability, sorry. Why would it even be considered if this is ETH? Right, so the answer is scalability, right? So there is a limit to how many transactions you can put through a single chain. So just one really important point. This problem already exists, right? Yeah. Why? Because we have multiple chains and because we have roll-ups and layer two stuff now. It's precisely the same problem, right? You now have these... These towers or these islands, these silos, I guess. Well, would be the word it for predates it, right? blockchains, right? Yes, exactly. This is like a problem with payments. Yeah. Is if you want efficiency, you need deferred yeah. settlement. That's the fundamental payments yeah. trade off. There, there's no squaring the circle. So like, this we, is a fundamental trade off. We like, sort of rediscovered this in the blockchain. We're rediscovering right? a lot of things in blockchain. But if it breaks one of the USPs of, USPs of Ethereum, the killer feature, the killer feature, then it changes Ethereum. Then what does Ethereum become with it? Is it just a more complicated Bitcoin? This is this is the whole journey of crypto. Oh God, is, is we're to, rediscovering. Hold on, I have to like emphasize the point there because somebody listening will be like, it's not big. Like I know that, but like, are they? Does it just become money and not smart contracts? It, I, I, I think that the whole journey here is, you know, so, someone summarized this by saying that like crypto bros are learning the lessons of that, that finance learned over decades, right? In, in, in fast forward, like that's kind of what's happening. Right. So okay. it, the short answer is it becomes more like to next point, the kind of existing financial system. So if they do get through sharding, what's after that? Um, so statelessness is a big thing on the roadmap, right? This is the purge, I think, right? So the idea is that, that running a node now takes hundreds of gigabytes of data a lot of cruft from years ago, spam attacks and things in the past, and there's no reason for nodes to need to store all this data. So uh, there are pretty advanced techniques involving things called Verkle trees and some other, that's another fun branding thing, um, that basically just advanced cryptography that means that you don't need to store all of the legacy data to run a validator. So again, this is in the interest of kind of making it as easy as possible to run a node or run a validator. And then later phases like the splurge thing, like once we've done this and we've cleaned things up and we've streamlined things, then you can add more fun stuff in the future. It sounds like a project that's going to take decades. Yeah. <laughs> it's been almost a decade. Yeah. Well, it's like the revolution never ends. What would they have to live for if they weren't continually... I never thought about it in those terms, but wow, that's a powerful idea. Uh, I mean, you've you've just described the everything I... Like the opposite of every reason I like Bitcoin. 
Like I was thinking, complete, like the well, simplicity. That's the beauty of it is now we can really compare the two. They're I was thinking so on the way over here that I think you guys would probably agree if I said Ethereum is on the order of like ten times more complicated than Bitcoin, right? If you figure smart contracts and EVM, right? So that's way more. So wait for it, wait for it. So this is old Ethereum, right? Okay. So now we have two Ethereum's, right? So we have the execution layer and the consensus layer. So that's doubled again. So now we're at twenty x or thirty x, right? And then on top of that you now get to add MEV, which we haven't even gotten into. And I think MEV is like another of order of ma- another order of magnitude of complexity so, so, here. Yeah, I've seen some conversations about that, that it can be gamed and it means you can front run things. And uh... So we're getting into, like, keeping up with Ethereum today now feels like being a doctor, right? You know how you can't be an expert in medicine, right? You can be an expert cardiologist. You have to have a narrow specialty because the field of medicine advances too quickly. And even within a field like cardiology, I think you probably have to be a specific type of cardiologist today if you want to keep up with with the science as it advances. So this is kind of the level. I'm just trying to lay the the foundation here. This is the the degree to which Ethereum has become complicated. And guess what? That also makes it feel more like legacy stuff. Yeah. Whereas Bitcoin is still Bitcoin. It's still simple. You can explain yeah. Bitcoin to someone like thoroughly in an hour. Yeah, and and it works, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of the issues that say Ethereum has with yeah things. Well. Let's be fair to it. it. It doesn't seem to have as large an attack vector. For sure. Attack surface, yeah. sorry. And I mean, like, I'm I'm not <laughs> far from a technical person, but I feel comfortable where I am with uh, Bitcoin. I've never felt comfortable with Ethereum, and I feel even less comfortable with it. You should feel less now. comfortable today. That's yeah, my I point. Just, <laughs> like, I can't see, it just, it feels like about as safe as keeping my money in, in, pound, in pound coins. Um, okay, right. So, why did they do this? Who is they and, and what's the this? The people, <laughs> Vitalik and his mates, why did they do this? What, did, what was the reason to do this? For what, the, the proof of stake? The, the... the whole thing, or this entire roadmap. Is it because uh, Ethereum 1 just could not scale? I think the, 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 the sort of one-sentence answer to your question is it's a better Bitcoin. That's, that's always been kind of Vitalik's vision since the beginning. And I, I, I think it's important to note that proof of stake... Like the, the the fundamental outlines of this roadmap have, have not changed since 2013, 2014. Yeah, it's, it's it hasn't changed. The, the details have changed, but the fundamental the white paper. It's in, it it's, was even before the white paper. It's yeah. forecasted. It, you know, Vitalik's views that proof of stake gives you more configurability, a greater design space, and security, more security. Yeah, they think it's cheaper. Uh, I certainly would dispute that, but um, yeah. Do you think he believes it's better than a better Bitcoin or a different? cryptocurrency the way i've heard vitalik describe ethereum is that versus bitcoin and other kind of single purpose chains is that ethereum is the yeah the general purpose platform it's like it's like the smartphone to bitcoin's swiss army knife or or to to this you know each individual chain you know that arose like the 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 colored coins and then the name coin and all this kind of stuff like they were each like adding a a feature to the swiss army knife whereas ethereum is just kind of this general purpose thing that can do everything so it is in this in in at least in a in one specific computer science sense, which is the fact that it's a Turing complete uh, virtual machine, which you can run anything on. At least in that respect, it is strictly better than Bitcoin. Again, I'm talking about this one dimension. Of course, there's a cost here in terms of complexity and security and things. Hmm. Has have all Ethereans been uh, been brought along with this and been supportive, or have people been lost along the way? The vast vast majority. I mean, I was lost along the way, but, but you're one of the very few. Yeah. I'm yeah, one of the very few conscientious dissenters who like really uh, isn't 
a huge fan of proof of stake. But, but yeah, not many. I mean, the miners I know didn't like it, obviously. Yeah, but no one cares about the miners. Yeah, they, they were hated. I mean, m- for most Ethereans, it makes sense to go along with the roadmap. Like, why not? Well, you I mean, know? I think by being an Ethereum in the first place, like, you are almost implicitly subscribing you're to the subscribing roadmap. You're drinking to the, the Kool-Aid. Roadmap. Yeah, so you believe in it. So... So you said you specifically don't like proof of stake. We did a whole episode on that. I know. (laughs) Not everyone would have listened to that one. So let's get back into it. Yeah, why is it you don't like proof of stake? What what are its flaws comparing it to Bitcoin? Yeah, so I I definitely suggest people check that out for for a much more in-depth analysis than we can do here. But I will give you the certainly the one sentence version. Actually, someone phrased this this way recently, and I really agree with it. Um, You could describe proof of stake in two words. Shareholders vote. And guess what? That is how the world works already. And for my part, the whole reason I got into this space five years ago or whatever it was, was to do something different. You know, like I want to build a system that at least has the potential to be democratizing and, um, and, and, and decentral- move towards decentralization, censorship resistance, these properties that we care so much about. And I think proof of stake is, is a huge step in the wrong direction. So that's the really short version. So what, are the, what, vote, what do they get to vote on and how do they vote? They vote, so here's the crazy thing. They vote, they being, again, the validators, the, the stakeholders, and, and, and they're the same. They're one in the same group in proof of stake, which they're not in proof of work. This is something else Nick and I talked about, and we should, we should zoom in on this because it's a really important point. There's kind of two separate classes of actors in proof of work, whereas in proof of stake, they really are one and the same. Um, they vote not only on which transactions to uh, admit in the order, right? So that's just the block construction piece. But here's the key thing. They also vote on the next set of validators. So there's this kind of circularity to it. Okay, so they vote what's in the block and the order. How can that be corrupted? How many validators are there? It, does it come through collusion? Okay, so I mean, like, what this is the part... risk? Here? What is what is the risk here? You know, we we know with Bitcoin that the miners are, are, are essentially uh, financially driven. They will just pick up the best transactions and build the blocks and move on. And yes, there are sometimes requirements. We have seen that with OFAC. Well, like yeah, it's more, it's more complicated than yeah. that in Bitcoin. Yeah. You have to address pools. Yeah. You have to address these nexuses of centralization. There's layers on both stacks, the proof-of-work stack and the proof-of-stake stack. So we can't be fully utopian about Bitcoin either. No, no. But let, let's, let's talk about the both. So yeah. Let's talk about how Bitcoin does it first. Then. Let's, I think that's a good idea because it's simpler. Yeah. How does Bitcoin do it? Well, in my view, you have different layers. So one layer is the literal physical infrastructure. And, you know, that's you know, physical ASICs and then energy and then, you know, other ancillary infrastructure. Um, And, you know, those are organized within corporations and many of them are publicly traded. So like there's, you know, definitely points of leverage and centralization there. They then submit those transactions to pools, which do the block templating and the block construction. And so if you were looking for, you know, points of centralization or government influence, it could be at either one of those layers, Right. Um, and so I would say those are really the two key layers. I don't know if you would identify. Yeah. And and I think to be fair, you know, especially with respect to the first layer, Ethereum has had a leg up here, right? Which is because of the fact that ASIC manufacturing is much more centralized than GPUs. And, and now, you know, to run an Ethereum validator, you don't need any specialized hardware at all. 
Um, and also with respect to energy consumption, right? So this is actually one of the very few arguments in favor of proof of stake that I do agree with, right? Bitcoin miners, proof of work miners have a very large energy footprint, whereas proof of stake, you know, validators, you could you could spin these things up as VMs anywhere. You could move them across the world, but there's no energy signature. So that that is one benefit. To proof so of stake. they're more identifiable and they're less Correct. mobile. Well, but what is the ben- what is the benefit to proof of stake? Because if you haven't got the energy cost. You haven't got the input cost to create the money. We haven't got them. Well, as you, Nick Sarbo says, everyone knows unforgeable costliness. You don't have that. I totally disagree with that, actually. Yeah, so, so you disagree with that? Yeah, so I think proof of stake is costly. I think capital is a cost. Yes. You can use it's that. The opportunity cost of the capital that's, that's locked. Yeah, and basically. so like we, money has a cost. It's called interest, yeah. right? So like there is a real cost to locking up, let's say, $20 billion on Ethereum. That could have been deployed to anything else. And I would compare it to like uh, government debt, basically. So think of Ethereum staking as like the blockchain equivalent of like T-bills. Um, in the real world, when interest rates get really high, um, the sovereign interest rates get high, it crowds out private sector spending, right? This is a very well-documented thing. It's kind of what's happening now, or starting and to, right? This is what's precisely yeah. what's happening now. It means there's less activity in the real economy because everybody's just parking their money with the government and getting paid for that. Same thing in Ethereum. Ethereum, the protocol, pays you to park money with them. That means like that money could have been doing something else, anything productive, whether it's in the blockchain context or in the real world. So you have to understand that that's basically a cost because it's an opportunity cost. The capital could have been deployed to like build nuclear power plants or windmills or something. So as a, as like a capital allocator, I assure you, capital has a cost, it's a real resource, and there's a finite amount of it. It's not as obviously evident as electricity or you know silicon, but it's still a costly good. There is still a, so I agree with that very strongly. So thank you for making that point. I, I do think there's still a difference to highlight. I think um, I think I'm, I'm going to keep quoting people who are smarter than me and more eloquent than me today because it's helpful. So like uh, Lop said this recently on Twitter, he said, "Proof of stake is rent seeking. Uh, proof of work is meritocracy." Right? And and there's some nuance there, and we could pick that apart. But I think the basic idea, and I say this as someone who has been doing this and has done both forms of mining, um, proof of stake is kind of set it and forget it. You know, you kind of spin up these validators. There's some very minor degree of maintenance required. You have to install patches and you know make sure no one's your keys are secure and things like this. But relative to the cost of proof of work, uh, the kind of ongoing maintenance cost it's it's low, right? Whereas with proof of work, um, as you guys know, you know you you uh, the the minor hardware, the the ASICs. Um, depreciate very quickly. You know, they have, I don't know what the full lifespan like is, but it's... Today would be like five-ish years, you would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And, and and better hardware comes along and um, you have to constantly chase the cheaper source of power. I guess that's probably the the, the larger cost. So, Well, that, there's a point in that as well. There's the competitive nature of exactly. uh, yeah. Bitcoin mining. What does that exactly. give you that proof of stake doesn't? What's the benefit of the competition within the mining? Well, it's a very powerful benefit because it means... Um, it's a, first of all, it's a very free market, open, competitive right. space. There's n- there's no way to get a strong, enduring advantage. As someone someone could come in tomorrow, and this has happened historically, yeah. and just build a better ASIC that's 10x better or something, capture the market as they deserve to. That is not possible in proof of stake. Well, I mean, it's not even about the ASICs. The ASICs are pretty commoditized. There's actually a bunch of suppliers now. I'm you know I'm not as worried about that. I mean, I would just say there's 
historically, there's been no miner that has super dominated. Right. There's no one that's that dominant. In fact, there's a ton of churn. So I would put that a point in favor of proof of work. We, yeah. we did have one, didn't we? If, uh, like eight, nine years ago, someone was like approaching 51% and they walked I remember that. that. They pool. walked it back, didn't they? Yeah. That was G-hash. That was yeah, a pool. G-hash. They walked so it back, didn't they? Difference between the miner and the pool. But yeah. yeah. I mean, the pools is an, is something his people have historically pointed to in terms of like these nexuses of centralization. But on the miner level themselves, the biggest miner in the world is probably GDA. They don't have that much hash rate. The right. biggest miner publicly traded in the U.S. is probably Core Scientific. Again, if you look at their share of all the exa hashes, it's not that much. And right? and. And is it getting lower? Is is it getting more decentralized? I think it will get more distributed over yeah. time. It'll be concentrating now for a little bit because there's consolidation. Mine yeah, is going yeah. bust. There'll be some M and A activity, but over time, there's no like it, there's there's very significant uh, diseconomies of scale once you get to a certain size because there's political constraints to how big you can grow. There's just not that many huge energy resources that are freely available. Like energy is a very globally distributed thing in terms of cheap energy. So it's just very hard to become enormously large. I think this is a key point that people totally misunderstand about proof of work versus proof of stake. So I'm really happy you brought this up and specifically that you mentioned the diseconomies of scale because one of the arguments I hear above almost everything else on the Ethereum side in favor of proof of stake is the belief, the mistaken belief that there is a, a large economy of scale in proof of work mining, and that this is not the case in proof of stake mining. I actually think the opposite well, it's, is true. It's discontin- It's a discontinuous yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's, it, yeah, the, the, it's the, a the, non-monotonous relationship, right? Because yes, as you're getting to a certain scale, you probably are, have economies of scale right. in terms of like a literal, you know, right. amortizing the cost of the data center. But as you get super big, now you run into political constraints. Right. You start getting banned in certain right. countries. Right. You run out of like cheap electricity. There's a finite amount of that available, a very finite amount. On the proof of stake side, I would say there are definitely economies of scale at an arbitrary size. It's blazingly obvious to me. And, and I, I don't understand. Like, this feels like very disingenuous on the part of Ethereum folks who have been arguing uh, the opposite point. And again, I can tell you as someone who runs this infrastructure, let me just, I'll just make one very simple point. In order to run a validator in Ethereum, you need, as I said, kind of two pieces of infrastructure. You need this kind of like EL and CL thing, execution layer and consensus layer. The execution layer thing is very heavy. Okay, this is validating the entire Ethereum blockchain that you know has been running since Genesis and, and it, it you know, there's hundreds of gigabytes and you need a fairly um, powerful system and high bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. However, here's the key thing. The consensus side is very lightweight, okay? And you can run an arbitrary number of validators, as many as you want, hooked up to a single, you know, piece of infrastructure that does like the execution layer side. And so you're amortizing, and this is just economics 101, you're amortizing the cost of that execution layer client over potentially dozens or even hundreds of validators. That is the definition of economy of scale. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. 
Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino. To find out more about BitCasino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lender market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today we have Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day and they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. I mean, the other more abstract Hold version... On, why would they want to deny that there's an economy of scale? They will say that the rewards you earn are directly proportional to the number of validators you're running, which is to say to, to your stake, right? So if you double your stake, you're in double right, the reward. Okay. And that is technically true, but it's only looking at the um, the capital cost piece that Nick spoke about. It's but, not looking at this the operational cost. But why is an economy of scale, why is that a negative? It's uh, bad because it in, over time, oh, right. you'd have a few large entities doing right. all the validation. The economy can, of scale, by the way, is just the rich get richer. It's yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. But I'd like, so what you're saying is they will push out other validators. Yeah. So obviously, it's bad if there's like a tiny handful of validators, whether it's proof of work or proof of stake. Empirically, we know proof of work has not concentrated with a small handful of validators. There's a large number of validators, public, private, globally distributed, all over the place. Miners. Miners, yeah. yeah. In proof of stake, in long term at equilibrium, and we'll see what happens here. If you look at the coins on exchanges, it only ever really grows as a share of the network. These these blockchains, the assets get more custodial over time. And who really wields the most power when it comes to staking 
is the asset managers, the banks. I think we should talk about this because this is a key thing. So we never finished though. What are the risks here with the validators building blocks, uh, arranging the order of blocks, like arranging the transactions? What what can they actually do? Because, yeah, like I say, an individual miner who or a pool who closes a block that. Actually, you have to correct me. I don't know if a pool does the pool create the block or the ASIC that would. Ah, this is an interesting point. We're talking about so this too. We've struck on the key key right. point here, and we should talk about this in both reports. The, the ASIC builds it. No, it's really the pools the that pools construct the, the block. The ASIC is just searching for the nonce. It's not yeah. right. Okay, so the ASIC builds the block. Uh, builds the block. Okay. No, sorry, sorry, no. sorry. The, 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 the ASIC <laughs> they literally yeah. just grind away looking yeah. for the nonce. Does, and then the pool builds the block. It's okay. currently happening at the pool level. Of course, because then the pool gets the coin base but and this, distributes it. But this is a problem, right? Because now it does mean that the pools have a degree of influence, right? Yes. And the pools could, in theory, uh, comply with OFAC or something like that. Okay, well, we will come back to that. But what? Are, how does? How does? Uh, I don't know. How does? How does the centralization within Ethereum, with the um, with the validator there? What can they do? What is the kind of shitty things they can do? So I think there, this is multifaceted, and I think that there is kind of a political economic component to this, which again, you and I spoke about last time. We talked about the Cantillon effect and stuff, which we could talk about more today if it's interesting. It is interesting. But I do think the most salient example uh, really is the censorship question. So I think I would say the shortest answer to your question is what they can do is they can censor transactions and they can they could halt the chain, theoretically. Um, there are a few more pernicious things they could do, such as a long-range attack, right? So these are things that are only possible in proof-of-stake, not in proof-of-work, or, or a simulation attack, where, for example, um, a validator who is no longer a validator, we talked earlier about like exiting, right? So they can kind of say, you know, mic drop, I'm done, I don't want to validate. They have to get into this exit queue, it takes some number of days or weeks or something to exit, and that's so that they can still be penalized for some period of time for bad behavior. But once they're done well, and they're gone... Is, is bad behavior. Uh, no, I'm saying if they were to commit okay. bad behavior kind of uh, before exiting, you still need a, a window during which you can punish them. Right? Okay. But that window has to end. Eventually, they have to be able to withdraw their funds and walk away. Um, once they've done that, they could then still do bad things like sell those keys, like sell their keys to bad actors. And if a bunch of validators do this, then you could have bad actors who kind of buy up these keys from exited validators who can no longer be punished because they exited. And that can be used to carry out some pretty severe attacks, like these long-range attacks. What that's is not our, possible in proof well, of That's form. all fairly hypothetical, yes. I would say. But yes. what are these attacks? I mean, it, it literally would be like... So, so the, the thing to understand is that the, in proof of work, every block you add to the chain, there's a provable cost to doing that. Right, a thermodynamic cost yeah. associated with the proof of work, um, and so if you wanted to, you know, add a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand blocks to the, to the Bitcoin blockchain, right? You you can't simulate that without actually doing the proof of work. It cannot be forged. That's the key fact. Okay, in proof of stake, simulation is costless. There's no proof of work. So you right. can, assuming you have the keys that I spoke about a moment ago, you could build an, a chain of arbitrary length instantly, just like that. Right. Of and it, then of it, it, because the the way the it's called the fork choice rule, right? So so if a if a a node that was offline right, that hasn't been following the chain, if, it, if it's presented with these two chains, there's no way for it to differentiate. It can't tell inherently which of them is the longest chain. Again, unlike in proof of work, whereas in proof of work, they can, they can immediately tell which one has the, the most accumulated proof of work. So these are key challenges that have had to be considered in design the proof of stake. But as Nick said, and I agree with this, they're very hypothetical attacks. I'm not aware of this ever having been done in practice. But I will say, if the stakes get high enough... Yeah, I mean, it's something to be mindful of. But the the real sort of like bad stuff the validators can do is censoring, yeah. which is happening today. 
and MEV, which is just an inherent feature of right, the blockchain. We'll come, we'll come, no, actually, let's do MEV first. These are the two big... Yeah, big let's do items. MEV, then we'll baddies. come back to censorship, because there's, there's a lot more to that I want to get into, because there are risks with censorship with uh, within Bitcoin, because we've... I mean, who who was it? Who Was it Marathon who signaled that they were OFAC-compliant? They tried to create an OFAC-compliant pool. But yeah. I will say, if Bitcoiners are hanging their hat on the non-existence of OFAC pools, they're going to be disappointed, because <laughs> there will be be okay in fact we'll come to that i think i think i reluctantly agree yeah no no i mean i just reluctantly agree it's going to happen i don't think it's a deal breaker but it will exist yeah for sure okay so let's talk about mev explain what it is all right let's let's do this um uh, i'll I'll go first and fill fill in things i I missed here. here so this is this is a complicated topic i've i've been following it loosely for it, it's only been a thing for two or three years um and i finally had the chance to kind of begin deep diving on it recently and so i'm really excited to talk about it because it's so interesting um so i think if i had to boil it down to the most fundamental form we were chatting about this earlier as well um it it really is an information asymmetry right uh which is to say you have kind of different actors in these networks, in these information networks that have different views on information. So certain privileged actors have have sort of privileged views on information. And I'm just saying this because I, I know this is very abstract. This, like, I have a background in HFT, actually, right? Like, I worked really? in, in, in traditional finance. Yeah. I worked at a, a quant hedge fund for a few years. That's where I started my career. This is not a new idea, right? This idea has been around forever, as long as there have been markets. Um, certainly, as long as there have been, like, you know, electronic Stock exchanges probably further back than that, um, and and it's it's a fundamental idea, and it's not going away anytime soon. Um, it's basically arbitrage, right? So it's that you have again these privileged classes of actors who have information uh, access to information that other actors don't, um, and. As with everything else in blockchain, we've invented a new name for it, MEV, which uh, originally stood for minor extractable value, has been rebranded to maximum extractable value because it applies not just in proof of work, but proof of stake. Um, But really, again, it's just arbitraging the fact that you have this uh, privileged access to information. Um, The the classic example of this is front-running. And again, this goes back to um, old school finance, right? So uh, you know, it used to be the case, I think a lot of people did this, that, you know, if you had a stockbroker back in the day, um, you know, the client would phone them up and say, you know, buy me 100 shares of IBM, don't spend more than, you know, $100 on it or something, right? And it's called front-running because these orders, you know, you'd have kind of the brokers who would take the orders on one side of, of the trading floor and they'd have to, like, run those orders over to the other side where the, the trading happened on the stock exchange. Are we going to get into the world of, like, these trading companies who wanted to build their, they want to get the fastest internet speed, they want to build the closest sure. possible That's MEV2. Is that yeah. MEV2? That's where we're going. Yeah. yeah. And was what Citadel were doing? Was that it? Yeah. I mean, effectively, they're in TradFi MEV. Yeah, and buying the data from... We're going to get there in blockchains, too. Yeah. It's going to be all about latency mm-hmm. and... Uh, yeah. And like co-location and stuff so, like yeah, that. Yeah, just just to be very let's be very explicit about this. This is actually something the fund I used to work for did, right? We would literally physically attempt to co-locate our infrastructure, our like physical machines, as close to the various exchanges as possible so that we could transact with them in less milliseconds than the competition for exactly this reason. Because, you know, speed is key. You want to be able to get those those orders in faster. Right. Um, okay. So how does this work in terms or how is this abused? In terms of yeah, so so let's fast forward to, to to kind of crypto. Let me just get to that part of the story. Um, so, some smart people kind of figured out that this was happening around 2020. So it's a pretty 
it's it's not that the phenomenon is recent, but I think we it's been articulated recently. So so Phil Diane and some of these some of these really smart folks, um, you know, kind of there was a paper called uh, Flash Boys 2.0 um, that introduced this concept and talked about how there's different strategies, right? So I think largely this grew out of DeFi. The DeFi summer was 2020, and specifically things like decentralized exchanges. So, so historically and even today, the majority of MEV on Ethereum is happening in places like Uniswap. And the most common example of this is called a sandwich trade, right? So if I'm a miner, again, we talked about privileged actors. If I'm a miner or a validator and I can see the mempool, the contents of the mempool, and I see buy orders coming in for some particular uh, one leg of a particular pair, right, which is how these decentralized exchanges work, um, I can insert my own buy order right? Buy the thing first and then let the other orders execute, right? So, so they will push the price up and then I sell. That's called right. a sandwich order. Okay, that's, that's seems, a form of front running. Yeah. Right. And that seems entirely logical, especially if you could see massive orders coming in. Right. Like and it's it, even worse if you're also an exchange, which we should talk about. But um, so... And you can, I guess, I mean, not every, you know, if you're a validator, you're not necessarily going to be the validator who closes the block or is everything pulled? You may be part of a pool or you may be a solo validator. Both both things happen. But but you could probably also automate what you're looking for within the mempool. Okay. So right. So let's talk about how MEV works. I think this yeah. is this is how we arrive at an answer to your question. So the problem was identified. Um I, I just want to emphasize again, it's just so important to make this point when you talk about MEV. People tend to uh, talk about MEV in terms of fairness, and they say, oh, there's a clear ethical line of behavior. There was some Coindesk article, I think, arguing like people who are who are engaging in MEV or profiting from it or somehow uh, yeah. evil or something. I think it was described as the institutionalization of theft. Yeah, and it, I, yeah, I, I remember that. Strong, I disagree article. with this on the strongest terms because MEV is fundamental. It's not going away, right? There will always be these information asymmetries. And in particular, like this is the whole way that Ethereum is constructed, that when we talk about trustlessness and, and economic incentives and things like we 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 want actors to kind of profit from doing you know behaviors that are that are that are constructive and 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 assembling transactions and things like this. So so MEV is not going away anytime soon. But how does it warp the system? Like how does it warp incentives? It it could in the extreme do things like destabilize consensus. Okay, you okay. could in theory have situations where miners or validators are incentivized to, uh, for example sensor transactions that they don't like or something, or I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think a really extreme example here would be like, if like, like, okay, I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, and this would be in Bitcoin as well, right? Let's say that a block was just confirmed, okay? But that block contained a transaction in it like that some powerful, wealthy actor didn't like for some reason. Maybe it was a fat finger mistake or something. And this has happened before, right? Then they could uh, try to bribe the network by offering... Um, a, a transaction with a very, very large fee, like be the order of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars or something, and try to get miners to effectively uh, do a reorg and like ignore the block that was just created and and reorg away from that towards this other block that includes this transaction that would only be valid as part of a reorg, right? Um, that's been theorized. That could happen. That could lead to consensus instability is what I'm saying, to like a fork. I have a simpler answer. I think the existence of MEV, like... Um, it sets the validators at odds with the users of the blockchain. Yeah. The users, they just want to use the blockchain, do commerce, and not be you know, perturbed too much. They don't want to have rent extracted from them. Now, there's the possibility to extract very meaningful amounts of rent from their ordinary transactions, and that profits the validators, right? So it is kind of like everyday users get punished for doing what they want to do. And it is to the economic gain of the validators. So it sets those two stakeholder groups against each other. 
Yeah, I, I think that there's. I, I mean, but it, I think it's an inescapable feature of these kinds of blockchains, though. So it's also like just sort of a fact of life. The, the naive response is, well, let's add fair transaction ordering. You've probably seen this, right? And there are a number of projects that have tried to do this. Um, and, and there's some notion that, oh, if, if we could just have fairness restored and have, you know, I don't know, first come, first serve, something like this, um, this doesn't work in practice because... Because you want to be able to bid for block space. Uh, that's one reason. Yeah, because it's an open auction yeah. for block space, right? But even more fundamentally, these are complex distributed systems and there is no simple way to, to order transactions. There's no canonical fairly. ordering. There's no canonical fair ordering. Just right. like there's no canonical consensus Because mechanism. the speed of light exists. Exactly. <laughs> Hold on, let me jump around here. But if you went to in shop... Fact, the, the fairest ordering is, is exactly, you, you, you take the highest bid first. I mean, that is economically efficient, right? Or as close as you can get to it. Could, could shard in partly solve this in that you don't know what's happening in every other shard? I think uh, it actually, it makes it worse. It makes it, it, makes worse. it worse because now, because you have what's called yeah. cross-domain MEV. Yeah, we can get into uh, that. I'm glad we, we didn't rehearse that, but I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> right, okay, okay. Well, I mean, it, it feels very antithetical to what Bitcoin is solving, which I, is just to be good money. But, but if you don't think of Ethereum as money, you just think of it as a, a system, a protocol for, for moving va- different types of value around and, then I, I consider it slightly different. But if that could happen in Bitcoin, that kind of that w- that would be something that would be a- very antith- antithetical to being good money. I think Bitcoin's going to have to grapple with it eventually. Be- in what are the scenarios where it happens? In the case where Bitcoin gains rich statefulness, which is like a Vitalik word the Bitcoiners don't like. But basically, if Bitcoin has more stuff that looks like decentralized exchanges or right. interesting, more complex transaction types there will be economic value to be gained by being strategic in terms of the ordering of those transactions. So MEV, in my view, is an inescapable feature of a situation where it's like a principal and an agent. The miner orders things, uh, and they're controlling value owned by someone else. It will exist if Bitcoin gains complexity. Okay. You could say it's almost like a good problem to have, maybe, for Bitcoin. Well, right. it means it's, it's, it's more it, useful to it more It shows people. that there's, yeah, right. it's becoming a more of a marketplace for all kinds of different things. Maybe Bitcoin won't go that way, right? There's obviously the school of thought that Bitcoin should do one thing, which is manage the UTXO set, and that's it. I kind of like that. Um, yeah, that's like the dominant philosophy. But maybe if like Lightning and Taro and other asset issuance takes off, maybe if you see more side chains, more of these smart contract platforms that are based on Bitcoin, which is happening, right? Maybe if you know Taproot causes more complex smart contract types, things like that then you will grapple this eventually. Even just relatively simple things like introducing stablecoins, which might be nice, that would introduce MEV as well because you need to be able to swap them you know, back well, and forth. There is a form of MEV on Bitcoin. It's just called 51% attacks. I'm not saying okay. those are a feature of Bitcoin. They don't happen really uh, ever. But that basically is under the banner of MEV. Mm. Okay. Be- because MEV is like an advantage to be gained by reordering transactions and 51% attack is reordering blocks. So hmm. that okay. it is MEV, basically. But it's a more imminent issue with Ethereum. I mean, yeah, it's, just yeah, it's to, a, to quantify things. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, but what is the concern? You're, like, you, if you're accepting it, but what is the concern? Again, what, what does it warp? We haven't got to like, yeah, the fun part. <laughs> yeah, okay. we haven't got to the good part. Um, so just, I think it helps sometimes to put things in, in, in specific terms. So um, I think we're looking at, as of today, according to 
the main source of information, which is flashbots, is about $680 million of MEV have been extracted from Ethereum since early 2020. But that's an undercount. That's, 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 a, an that's a floor, right? So it's probably a lot more. That's one it, specific. How is it calculated? Give right, me so, examples. Uh, so, okay, so there is a project, there's also a company called Flashbots, right? Which is uh, one of the main um, teams of people kind of working on this, both, both building products around it, but also doing research on it in the Ethereum ecosystem. So broadly speaking, the approach Ethereum has taken is that MEV is unavoidable, as we both agreed. Um, and as a result, the best thing we can do is drag it into the light and democratize access to it, make it so that any validator, anyone producing blocks can at least benefit from it, and also um, try to decentralize it as much as possible. So you have kind of multiple search. So, so searchers is the term that's usually used to refer to the people actually doing the arbitrage work and actually assembling these transactions and ordering them, and then have an open marketplace, right? So that they can bid and offer these bundles of transactions or these full blocks to the block producers. And so this gets into an area called proposer builder separation, which is, which is a proposal in Ethereum to address some of the censorship concerns. Um, risks. So, I mean, the most obvious one is that, uh, what are the numbers? We were just looking at this, something on the order of 30, 35, maybe as many as 40% of the blocks being produced in Ethereum today are censoring transactions, full stop. And that is because of infrastructure like Flashbots, which is Why? compliant, what, what? It's, it's OFAC compliant. Oh, so, okay. So what changed post-merge is um, it became institutionalized this MEV concept, Flashbots is the main actor there. Most validators use them to um, sell the right to third parties to arrange transactions. About 50%. 50%. Who are they selling it to and who is paying to have these, transactions censored? These searchers, right? Right, so searchers are call paying. Them that anymore. Searchers yeah. are paying. Basically, they, they, they offer, let's just call it, sometimes they're called bundles of transactions. Let's just call them blocks, right? So they assemble a block with, with transactions in a particular order that they like. And actually, people pay them as well. You can also pay them to get, for example, front-running protection, right? If, if I, as an individual trader, wants to make sure that I don't get sandwich attacked, I can pay the searcher to insert my transaction at the front of the block, something like this, okay? So it's a whole complex ecosystem. And then those searchers put these blocks onto a marketplace with a bribe or a bid attached to them. And so they're paying the proposers to take these blocks. And proposers are just ordinary people who are running these validators, or they could be the large actors. I mean, because think about it. You're a validator. You're, let's say you're Lane, running your, your validator over here. You don't have the time or the energy to like look at Uniswap and decide how to arrange transactions so you can extract maximal value. That's a very complicated thing to but do. Where, where are they, what's the value they're extracting? What's the additional value they're extracting? This is this is MEV. This is what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, no, but what what is the actual like how do, what, how they increase running, things like 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 this? It comes all from front, there's many other flavors. The main thing would be giving end users worse execution on their transactions. So right. they want to buy X amount of, you know, they want to do a swap on Uniswap. Maybe instead of having you know five basis points of slippage, it's thirty. Right. And okay. so the you know the the searchers and the validators capture that. We okay. have a term for this in traditional finance. It's called picking off the retail investors. Yeah, Un- it's, unsophisticated. It's, it's just pure pure rent extraction. And and was this what was essentially happening when Citadel were buying retail data? I would say it's very similar. Yeah, very similar. 
And also the similarity is that it's only very sophisticated large firms that do it well. By the way, if you've ever used an app like Robinhood, I mean, yeah. you, know, you know Robinhood's business model, right? This is Robinhood's yeah, business model. The they right. sell the rights. They flow. sell the yeah. yeah. That's, this is their, it's so institutionalized. It's like, it's like the, the water we all swim in. And no in one complains about it. Yeah. Right, because they get to use Robinhood for free. Right? So the problem is now there's basically one entity in the Ethereum ecosystem that's super sophisticated about MAV, which is Flashbots, and they are the big aggregator in the marketplace where everybody comes. The problem is they happen to be, I believe, a U.S. company, and they've decided to basically comply with OFAC, in my opinion, over-comply. And so if you're using Flashbots, for the most part... Um, the blocks themselves are excluding OFAC transactions. But that's not, you said there's 40% of transactions. Currently, roughly that, yeah. What, why? What, what are these transactions that they're, that OFAC are requiring them to be censored? Well, I mean, well, the, Tornado Cash is the most obvious yeah. one, but, but basically okay, there's, there's, a, there's a hard-coded set of addresses. So there's first and second order, right? So the first order is the actual set of addresses that OFAC has specifically designated and added to their SDN list, right? And this includes Tornado, but it also includes addresses associated with, with, with SDN, these specifically designated people on the sanctions list. But it's more complicated than that because it's also people who have transacted with them. So there's the second order effect. And that's where players like TRM Labs come in, right? So there's folks on chain analysis, right? Folks who come in and and offer this as a service um, and, and, and let people, you know, check an address and see if it's on, on this list or not. I'm just amazed at that many... That many transactions would make it onto. We're not, no, not talking about transactions. We're talking about blocks. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's not forty percent. There's, of the there's not really a lot of transactions that are actually okay. interacting with like Tornado Cash for now. I mean, it's been <laughs> Tornado Cash usage has just fallen off a cliff, yeah, really. Yes. But these are blocks where you can tell that they are explicitly not engaging with the sanctions list. So it's specific transactions within a block. So forty percent of blocks feature some form of censorship within it. Yeah, it's, it's what's not there, not yeah. what's there, yeah. right? So the, the point yeah. is, right, they would be specifically producing compliant blocks that would not include any transactions that touch any of the sanctioned addresses. And I want to just quickly mention, this is actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, it's a really hard thing to do in Ethereum uh, because of the way the EVM works. Yeah. Um, in fact, censorship itself is a denial of service vector. This goes back to what happened after the DOS attack. The really short version is that you can very easily censor a transaction that directly touches or interacts with a censored with a with a, a sanctioned address, but there's all sorts of forms of kind of indirect interaction that are actually very expensive and complicated to detect, and they actually couldn't be censored in the first place effectively. Hmm. So okay. it's a very it's a very hard problem. Also, I will say that like the Ethereum community is very aware of this, so it's not like this is happening and they don't think it's a problem or something. Right. I mean, I would say opinions are split. But there's, there are attempts to kind of remediate this. But like Robinhood users are getting a trade here. They're getting the fact that, okay, they're getting front run, but they're getting to make free trades. So there's a trade-off. Well, they're not actually free. That's the point. They, don't, they just don't understand that the cost is baked into the price they're paying. It's, you know what it's like? Yeah. It's, like? it's like if you show up at an airport and you want to do a currency exchange and they're like, commission-free trading. But of course, there's a spread baked yeah, in that you can't yeah. see. Yeah, no, I get, I get that. But what I'm saying is there is a trade-off there. But within within what you're saying here, within Ethereum blocks, that there is no trade-off. You are just at a disadvantage. Well, the, the main problem we're identifying here is not the existence of MEV, which we think is inherent, sorry, sorry, but say. it's because MEV creates this centralization vector that is now used for censorship. I think, I think, no, you're, you're right. What I'm saying is it's not like, oh, because I'm not front-running, I, I, I get free gas. 
No, but there, you're right. There is a disadvantage to the validators. Actually, it's interesting. There's a disadvantage to the validators who censor because they're missing juicy fees from those transactions. And so there's actually an advantage to being censorship resistant here, mm, which okay. is quite interesting. At least that is working in our well, favor. Well, theoretically, there's an economic advantage, but there might be a political disadvantage. Right, exactly. There's no free lunch, no yeah, arbitrage. And, and so how bad could the censorship get? Because it, it sounds to me like, in some ways, Ethereum is approaching being fully captured. So, so this, is, this is the question. Ethereum's on a slippery slope. I think yeah. it's a very slippery slope. Other people don't think, don't think it's such a slippery slope. So, for example, like Vitalik has said, it's not a big deal if some subset, even some double-digit percentage of validators or you know pools or whatever are censoring, because as long as there's still a few who don't censor. I disagree with that how in very strong how terms. How many pools are there? Well, that's the problem is it's kind of a shrinking number. I mean, there's there's pools that are dominant and then there's also like individual pools of capital that are dominant. Binance, Kraken, and Coinbase. The three of them together is, I think, over 50%. But they will all be compliant. Most likely. Well, Coinbase says they won't. But So it's an interesting question about compliance. Yeah, so... Whether or not you have to, as a validator, you know, exclude OFAC transactions is an open question. Yeah, I would say so. They're all kind of over-complying. They're sort of trying to intuit what they think the government wants. They're doing them to what do. companies do. They're listening to their lawyers, and their lawyers are super conservative. That's what you pay lawyers to do. But at the same time, if the U.S. government knocks on the door of Coinbase and says, or knocks on the door of Kraken, I mean, Kraken might leave the U.S. But what I'm saying, if they knock on the door and they tell them you have to do this, they're going to roll over. So what? 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 What Brian Armstrong said, right? This is one person. He is the CEO. He said that we would shut down our validators before we would comply. That seems okay. preposterous to me. I don't know if they could, right? I think that, that I he'd think be he would responsible be fired for, by for the board if fiduciary he did that. duty. Exactly, a breach of fiduciary His duty. His duty is to his shareholders, right. and it's to maximize corporate value. I agree. 100%. And that means running a well, fat about, validation business. So because right, we're talking about a huge amount of income, and we're, that might be the their bulk of their revenue. And your you fiduciary know? duty trumps your duty to a, to the a Ethereum network. community. Yeah, yeah. yeah your, your fuzzy sense of warm, ethical benevolence towards it. I think that's This true. fiduciary duty, who who enforces it and how is it enforced? Because there'll be many times that people... The shareholders. Do, so if the, but that would require the shareholders to enforce it. The board acts for the shareholders. They would probably fire him if he if they had a $10 billion a year What if the whole board line? agreed it? I, it's, you know, I mean, it becomes an interesting corporate governance question. Like, yeah. would the board prioritize you know, the values of the Ethereum community over maximizing shareholder value. My guess is it's the latter. I actually, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but this topic has come up on crypto Twitter a few times recently. It's it's interesting how few people in our community are even aware of what fiduciary duty means and why it matters. Um, I was looking for precedent and there's very little. There's vanishingly little of it, even in like Delaware corporate well, law. Well, one, one, one example would be like Exxon. So Exxon recently had a like shareholder revolt where... The board installed these like pro ESG activists. And so they deliberately made their business worse to be more environmentally conscious. So that would be an analogy, I would say, where you actually deliberately reduce your revenue in right. order to maximize a different value. I agree. That's similar. So that's like stakeholder mm. capitalism. I, I think the real question here, we could probably agree, is is it appropriate for companies, right, that are registered known entities, you know, ex- politically exposed entities? to have such a strong influence over these networks that we want and desire no. to be somehow outside of all these politics in the first place. Right. That's the real question. And no, of course we don't. And so in it, this respect, you could say Ethereum has been captured or, or is rapidly moving towards being captured by 
Yeah, and like, are we even doing anything new if we have de facto 100%. surrendered governance of these networks to large financial institutions? And it's only going to get worse. From yeah, here. I was going to say, do we have any data yet that is uh, highlighting that the, it is centralizing even more, like since the merge? Well, I mean, it was pretty decentralized pre-merge. It was no, a bunch no, no, of miners. No, but, but post-merge, we have the pools. We have the large pools. Is there any evidence to show? Oh, like how has the composition changed yeah, since? It's, it's only been three weeks. I think yeah. it's too soon but to tell. So there's, no, there's nothing yet to. I mean, I, I think what Nick said is very true. I think that over time, like the stake in these in these exchanges specifically, only tends to go up. Well, yeah. here's one reason: is because there's regulatory barriers to entry to being right. an exchange. You need now, if you're going to start a Coinbase competitor, you would need at least a hundred million dollars in startup capital and, and it's strong economies of scale that are getting stronger. Right, and like the government is going to make it very hard to be a large regulated crypto exchange in any jurisdiction the eu just passed all this complicated regulation i'm sure it'll happen here there's not going to be that many large crypto exchanges it's in the government's interest to have a small number that they can control but you can independently be a validator sure. yourself yes sure. unfortunately there's not a lot of independent validators out. so i just wanted this is this is actually interesting so when people naively look at that famous pie chart you know the from dune analytics or whatever the breakdown and we should include a link in the show notes because it's really interesting for people to see it you find it then uh, yeah. So if you if you behind Liz over here, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she, so she looks nice thrilled. When we Ether, went, Ethereum proof of stake um, validator breakdown probably would be sufficient. And if you include like doing analytics or something, you'll find it on crypto Twitter as she's well. She's nicely positioned when we bring up a like hilarious article. Where she's just like join us in. I she looks so up. happy. I don't think she's that happy. Should we get her I opinion on? Uh, that was in the before times. Yeah, that was that was before, <laughs> that, was, that was before <laughs> the, the the political merge. <laughs> um, so when people glance at this pie chart, which hopefully Danny, Danny will kindly throw up on the screen in a sec, um, you know, you see this very strong, um, what is it called? This long tail effect, right? Where you have these three or four, uh, you know, colored squares here, right? Exactly. Okay. So this, this is perfect. Thank oh, you. This yeah, is really, really yeah. good. So you'll see if you, if you just add up the top, you know, three or four or whatever, I mean, you can even see visually the top Hold two, on. you're is, already at like almost 50%. Is unlabeled the name of a pool or something no. that's not labeled? That no, would be a great just, troll. That's if just it were. The other. Yeah. yeah. Right. But the main point I want to make here is that Lido finance is, is decentralized. So this is actually not a single that's actor. True. I don't even know if Lido that's itself true. as a, as an entity has any censorship control whatsoever. I think they may not. So actually so everything in, in this blue yeah. here, these, this is actually a bunch of home validators. So Coinbase, Kraken, Binance is what? That's about true. 30%, 32%? But remember another thing, and yeah, so we have to be fair to Lido Finance because it is composed of many People misunderstand this and this is, there's been a lot of FUD around this. But, but, um, so is, this, is, this, is this like the most recent? Because I'm not sure. That may not be. I'm not sure this may is totally be. up to date. But the thing to to think about is the trajectory that Ethereum's on. Right. Is it going to get easier to run a validator as an individual, or is it going to get harder as we get into sharding? My anticipate and right. as it's the, go for, no, this 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 is harder. It just gets harder. And slashing means I don't have a strong incentive to run a validator as a normal person because I might screw it up and get slashed. Right. So I'm probably just going to do it with a large institution, hmm. like a Coinbase. It'd be fun, by the way, to put the Bitcoin mining pool breakdown uh, up here and we could do a yeah, I mean, quote-unquote fair side-by-side -side comparison. I think we should be fair because yeah. right now in Bitcoin, the blocks are being constructed by the pools. Mm -hmm. And so if Bitcoin wants to have the moral high ground, we need to remand the block construction back to the miners themselves. That's not currently the case. Wasn't there a proposal by Matt Carlo to do that? Yeah. Ah. Uh, Is this more recent? It's, yeah, I mean, you see how big that 
Lido, I mean, Lido slices. I think again, people kind of. Is Lido not? Who, who is? I wonder who Daniel Wong is. Wow, he's a Chad. I mean, Daniel on here. Lido is accountable to the U.S. in some ways, yeah. but it is a constellation of different validators. But does the pool itself, as well, like Bitcoin, when we talked about, does the pool construct construct the block? Uh, I think some well, pools, yes, some pools, no. It depends. We have validated. There's multiple pools up here. There's Rocket Pool as but well. But I'm saying, does, is, does Lido construct the block? And therefore, my, under, my understanding is no. It, my understanding well, is yeah. Now matter. we have the proposer builder separation in ETH. Okay. Okay. So the validators aren't even really doing it, but you know they still have a ton of influence in Bitcoin. Uh, to answer your question, Peter, yeah. um, there's a proposal to basically have the miners template the blocks and. The difference with Bitcoin is there isn't MEV right now, so it doesn't really matter which transactions you include. So it is something that anybody could still do. Until there's MEV, it'll be something that's relatively easy for anyone, so it would still be sort of more decentralized. This show is brought to you by Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Next up, we have the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council is putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. This event will be two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. Day two is where we will hear from top policy leaders in the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, and CFTC commissioners. So what more could you ask for? Now, I'm not just promoting this. I will be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing a very important person. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. And also, if you come along, come say hello. It'd be good to meet some of you. To find out more, please head over to texasblockchainsummit.org. That is texasblockchainsummit.org. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. 
Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. And is there a slight different issue in that? Um, how would you front run Bitcoin? You'd front run based on you know, massive buys and sells, but they tend to happen on the exchange anyway. Well, yeah. So that's the thing is there just isn't a lot of MEV on Bitcoin yeah. because there aren't big decentralized exchanges. Yeah. But that, the growth in decentralized exchanges would raise that risk. It would Bitcoin. create yeah. MEV, yeah. 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 So, like, if you, there's a school of thought that if you want Bitcoin to succeed, you want it to be more stateful. You want there to be more richness behind the transactions, not just moving UTXOs around, but maybe doing other stuff. In fact, yeah. I think people would argue, like, like Bitcoin maximalists would say, we don't want this stuff running on Ethereum, we want it running we on Bitcoin. It, yeah. and like, I think we all agree that would be great, but, but then you get MEV. So you it, can't have a free lunch, right? It's but, something but to be aware of. If yeah. it happens on Lightning, does that change it? Lightning would still be exposed to it because Lightning is Lightning transactions are Bitcoin transactions. You know, I mean, less I think because you know, Lightning transactions are not in the mempool; they're not like on layer one. Right? There's more privacy, but powerful actors would be running channels that are popular, and they'd have yeah. access to privileged. It, yeah. it would end up being the same thing. Okay. As, as long as you have a public mempool and you have miners that have influence over the construction of the block, you're going to have MEV. Is there no way to uh, mask what a transaction is in the mempool, and it's only revealed once the block is built. Great question. So some of this is actually happening in in Ethereum. There's kind of plans to do and some other of this blockchains stuff. too. Yeah. I mean, there's now private smart contract blockchains. Part of the idea is to solve MEV. I don't think it solves MEV. Why not? Because there's techniques you can use to try and ascertain what a transaction is, even if you can't see clearly what it is. Yeah, you shared this fascinating uh, symbolic MEV. Yeah, there's a good uh, from talk from Georgios Constantinopoulos, great name, fellow Greek. Um, and basically his point is, you can probably still figure out what a transaction is doing, even if you can't directly see the transaction. How though? So this proposal takes ideas from software security, right? So when you're um, testing software poking holes. This is kind of some of what I do in my day job. Um, there's different techniques you can use. There's what's called white box, black box, gray box, right? So white box is like, I fully understand what's happening inside the box. And black box is, I abstract it completely. I have no idea what the code is. I can't see it, but I can still try sending it things and seeing how it responds, right? So you can still do this like black box testing. You can do something called fuzz testing where you send you know, millions or billions of different types of like random data into a thing, whether that thing's a smart contract or an application or an API or something, and try to break it in different ways. So these are techniques you can still use. Mm. I'm glad that you read the slides because I wouldn't have been able to explain that. Okay, right. Okay, so there is a heightened risk of censorship and uh, OFAC-compliant censored addresses. That's obviously... That's one scenario, but what about a scenario whereby, like, I think this, what I'm trying to get to is the slippery slope where yeah. there's things that are being censored by the government, for example, like what we have with truckers. I think this is the really pernicious like and really dangerous thing. control of money. It's the control of money. You, you get this overreaction, right? Okay. So what we saw in the wake of Tornado Cash is not 
<laughs> it's not simply, um, you know, companies, let's just use the word companies, kind of stepping in and, and explicitly censoring transactions that explicitly touched, you know, the explicit addresses on the OFAC list. What you get instead is this, is this simping behavior. I don't know what to call it, this rolling chilling over behavior. Effect. I would right. say chilling effect. This chilling effect where, where you see both uh, companies yeah. going way above and beyond what they, what, what, OFAC has specifically restricted, right, in order to just just be as compliant as possible. And and we saw this in DeFi. We saw, you know, again, these these lists published by companies like TRM Labs and like front ends just banning access to anyone who even touched um, Tornado or touched something that touched Tornado. There was this dusting attack thing that happened and like all these important influential people, their accounts got put on this blacklist as a result. That was brilliant, by the way. But another chilling effect, which I really want to touch upon, is it's chilling the development of privacy. I have a lot of friends people I love and care deeply about who are working in this space and they're fucking terrified. Because what happened with Tornado Cash? Because they put one of the developers in yeah. prison in the Netherlands. With, like, can we talk no, about this? No like, what trial. the hell is going on? Yeah. Oh, we, we can talk about and this. This is insane. His, they sold his stuff. <laughs> and won't let his Doesn't, wife talk to him? Yeah. Like, what is actually going on? This but is I, terrifying. I mean, Do we know the status of his legal case? Unclear. But I mean, it's remarkable that the, in the Netherlands, an ostensibly free country, yeah. is doing this. It blows my mind. It yeah. blows my mind. It, also, that more people aren't talking about this. Well, so that was one of the things. I think it might have been Miles who came out with a good thread. He said, like, Bitcoiners should really they should care, care about, about and pay attention. It. And I think, right. I, I think a lot of them do. And I think the ones who don't haven't really thought through the hypocrisy of their own position on it. I just don't think they've thought it through. I mean, Bitcoiners should be impressed that Ethereans are now stepping up and being more cypherpunky because for a while they weren't. Now the Ethereans are actually in the firing line. Yeah. So I Bitcoiners mean, thought they were the hardcore ones. There's some Ethereans that are now, you know, really sticking for like up, sticking to their guns. Some are, and some and some have stopped some working on some have stopped working on privacy yeah. stuff entirely. I can tell you this from conversations I've had with friends in the past few weeks. It's that people are really scared. Even U.S. citizens. Yeah, I mean, look, there was a certain number of lawsuits over the last couple of years that have had a chilling effect on Bitcoin developers. We, we sure. saw a number of people step back. We saw Peter Wille step back, Jonas Schnelli step back. We saw a number of people. It happens. And, and if, you've, if you've got a fear for, I mean, there's being fearful of having a lawsuit. Going to jail is an entirely I mean, different proposition. Yeah, like Virgil Griffith. Hit, sorry, Virgil I Griffith. Mean, like, what happened to him? Like, all he did was give a talk in North Korea. I'm not an apologist for he that. He made a transaction, apparently. Oh, did I he? Think, I think okay. my limited I mean, understanding, that's actually what, where like, they got him. It wasn't wise. There's okay. transacted <laughs> with, with North Korea. There's building privacy technology, and then there's going to North Korea and giving a presentation. It that wasn't explains. smart what it, he did. It wasn't well, he also, did he he also deserve... advertised the fact that he was going. He invited me on the trip, by the way, and a bunch of other oh, people. Glad he didn't go. Did, I mean, yeah. did, did he, he do... I don't think so. Oh, Did he deserve worry. like X many years in federal prison no, for that? No, of course not. But like at so. the same time, you know, I don't think Ross Ulbrich deserved right. his entire time in Two prison. Two life sentences. Two right? life sentences for yeah. 40 years. Yeah. I don't think he should have been... Uh, tried like El Chapo, but but, but so, at the I, same I, time, when he did it, he knew the risk he was taking. Right, he knew if he got caught, he's going to be arrested and he's going to be, you know, charged with something. And what I'm saying, so just finish. I think Virgil must have known he was taking some risk. But this guy, what's what's his name? Roman. Yeah. Something like he's building privacy technology. He did a thing which, at least, like, again, I can't speak to Dutch law or or whatever. Uh, he did a thing which is constitutionally protected here under free speech. I yeah. mean, and we fought this war in they the 90s. Have, we fought this in the crypto war. They don't have the First Amendment over there in Europe. Good to be American. Yeah, seriously. I'm, yeah, I can personally vouch for that. Um, but 
has he been arrested under pressure from U.S. government? Does it come from there, or is it just the Dutch I mean, government? Well, that's a good question. The I think whole we don't know. the whole sanctions edifice is a U.S. Yeah. political tool, right? I mean, and like SWIFT is nominally a Belgian entity, but they enforce U.S. policy. The U.S. has its tendrils all over the place. Yeah, this is part of the the dominant like institutional regime they operate. Apple has gradually provided more and more privacy tools for your phone or your laptop. They've increased, they've made privacy a competitive feature within the operating system. I hate com- when people say that Apple is good at privacy. No, I didn't say, did I say it was good? I said, said they've, they've offered made, tools, but they've also undermined privacy in other course, ways. What I'm saying is they've offered tools. They've worked on privacy. Sure. How is that different from somebody working on a different type of financial privacy? I mean, this is the U.S.'s one last remaining weapon, weapon of war yeah. is sanctions. It's all they have. They don't want to go to war with tanks. So it's their last tool. It's going very. It's becoming blunt. It's becoming extremely blunt with overuse. Everyone hates it. The fact they're, they use sanctions so aggressively, but they don't want to give that up. So they will fight to the last. Look breath. at the. I think it was sanctions, right? Freezing of uh, Russia's sovereign funds. I mean, I, I feel like you spoke about this. What? How unprecedented that was, and how you could only get to do that once or something, right? Well, That's, they froze Afghanistan's, uh, you know, sovereign debt too. I, so uh, Venezuelan, but yeah, like we've got G twenty nation. We've got the Venezuelan gold. We have it in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, but yeah, Russia, a G twenty nation. You know, I thought the sanctions wouldn't work. I don't think they've worked. But you know, the US, it's all they have now. They don't actually want to. Send so so is the difference anymore. here is not that he was providing a privacy tool. He provided a privacy tool that was used in contravention of. OFAC I mean, requirements. We know that North Korea was using tornado cash. And it right. made up some okay. some substantial portion. We don't know the exact number, but some double-digit percentage of all the funds flowing through it. I, I, I've heard 40%. Something. It's, yeah. it's a large number. Of, of the transactions were from North Korea. A lot of the a pool lot. was illicit, whether North Korea or other hacks. And, and that's probably why right. it happened and why it happened relatively quickly and why it was tornado cash and not other mixers. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and let me be very clear. I, mean, I don't think any of us are arguing that we want to facilitate, you know, North Korea or any of these other kind of state actors, nefarious state actors to, to do these things. But we have to balance this against the fact that privacy is fundamental and it's a human right. And but but could, could Tornado Cash have blocked those North Korean transactions or is there no way they could have known? They couldn't have blocked them, censored them. In the, because, I mean, Tornado Cash, just to be clear, it's uncensorable, right? The actual smart contract right. is still running. You can still interact with it. You can, you can do various things on the front end. And they were, actually. They actually have... They had some feature baked in or something where you could generate a receipt to kind of prove that the funds that flowed in were not illicit or something. You and could people, prove the illicitness correct. of your... And people kind of elide over this in a lot of the yeah. commentary. So there actually were but efforts it, made. It, it, Tornado Cash was deployed and then the admin key was burned. Right. Well, there are many pools, actually. But so the admins had no residual control over, still the, right. over the right. contract. Right, okay. So even if he'd exited the project, he still could have been arrested or because he was still benefited from it. So look, I, I, I think we have to wait and see. We have no yeah. choice. I think that there's things going on here that we're not aware of. Yeah. And I, I hope it all comes to light eventually. Um, I've there been taking a wait a and token. see approach. I mean, there was a token. Yes. So that might be the angle they use. That right. He, is that he, was he was actually personally profiting from it. Financially yeah. benefiting from the usage. Although I heard that the fees hadn't been turned on or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's very yeah. complicated. Right. Are we at the point where we should just now compare a lot of this back to Bitcoin? Or is there anything else you still wanted to add? I think, yeah, my two key things were censorship and um, MEV. I think we 
covered that MVV, yeah, you well. said, I mean, we've covered that. Look, it's possible. And oh, it will be one point. Yeah. So we didn't actually ask the question, like, what can be done about it, right? We kind of established that it exists. We kind of established that this um, censorship is happening. So it might be worth just taking just a minute or two to just talk about the Ethereum approach, and then maybe we'll transition back to Bitcoin, yeah. right? So in defense of Flashbots, whom we spoke about earlier, um, you know, they they seem to recognize... Uh, and they have been, some folks have been very vocal on Twitter and some other places, um, the, the effect that this is having and the fact that that the um, number of blocks being produced that are censoring like is going up and, and that they're responsible for this in some fashion. And so um, their approach is, you know, educate, democratize, open source, and they're doing that, which is exciting, right? So I was actually playing with this, just sometimes it's good to have hands-on experience, like what, what does it mean to spin up their software called MEV Boost and connect your validator to it? Um, and and what you do is you connect to one or more relays, okay? And the relay is the way in which your validator kind of gets the block. Um, and and uh, so this is how the, the uh, builder or the searcher hands the block to the proposer, which is the validator, and submits it to the network, right? And then you get these blocks and exchanges for fees like we talked about. Um, so the software this MEV boost thing that you connect to your validator, um, there's no default relay, right? So there is a Flashbots relay, and it is censoring, and they've been you know, vocal about that. They've, they, they haven't sort of tried to hide that fact, but there are others. So there's Blocks Route, right? It's another, I don't know if it's a company or organization or something, and they offer, I think, three options, right? So one of which is a compliant um, router, and a relay, rather, and one which is not, one which is called max profit, which is kind of cool. And so that includes, like we spoke about earlier, like it would be more profitable to include all the transactions. Um, and uh, and that's a good thing, right? And, and the idea is that if we encourage this ecosystem, if we make this research public, if we open source the software, then other actors can step up, other actors who are not exposed, or maybe they're pseudonymous, or maybe they're in other regimes or something, other jurisdictions. Um, so that's kind of the best possible outcome for Ethereum, that, that more decentralization happens, that we move more towards proposer-builder separation, um, which ultimately will land in the Ethereum protocol itself, which also may address some of these issues that we're seeing right now. That is actually on the roadmap as well. So that's a snapshot of where we're going on the Ethereum side. The, the way I'd compare it back to Bitcoin is like, okay, well, how does this matter for Bitcoin? Right. Well, in, just can I just say an observation? One of the yeah. observations I have about Ethereum, my limited understanding of it and not being technical, is it's, it kind of reminds me of the British economy right now. <laughs> you pull one lever and you have to fix something elsewhere. Okay, so you have to create a new sticky plaster for the what that's created, you know, and once that's created, there'll be yeah. a new sticky this plaster. Is, we is, have this it in the fair, British right? economy so, right now because, like, we have tax cuts and then the pound crashes. So yeah. the, they raise the interest rates, which means houses become unaffordable, which means we have a housing crash. Like, this is we're seeing this economic tug. We, of we talked about previously the difference in values, right? So, Bitcoiners value security at all costs, and Ethereum uh, folks value innovation and they don't mind the complexity. And so I agree with you. I think that there's complexity on top of complexity, like we talked about. And to address that complexity, you need to add more complexity. Yeah. So that is, I agree. That's that's what's happening here. And if you look at the actual proposals for things like proposer builder separation or censorship resistance, right? We were talking about this, this idea of CR lists and you know, this this fallback mechanism so we can make sure that there's always a way. They're wicked complicated. They're very complicated. Yeah. And how mechanisms. many how many holes does that leave? How many new attacks, are, how, how much does that increase the attacks? Every time you add complexity, you yeah. increase the attacks. And I, no question. I think it's incontrovertible that the merge has increased complexity, which in turn has made it easier to censor Ethereum. I, I think that's undeniable. Maybe they can address it. They are aware of it. But Ethereum has become more censored since the merge. Okay, so bringing it back to Bitcoin, like we've talked about uh, MEV, it's not a huge issue right now, but it's something that might may, depends how it, uh, it develops, but... 
Yeah, but but with regards to censorship, that, that's the area I'm super interested in because, you know, I know Marathon attempted to create... Others will. Others yeah. will. I can assure you of that. You know, and, you know, Bitcoin's not 100% pure upon its pedestal because we're still relying on pools to construct the blocks. Um, can we get away from that? Maybe. There's attempts to create Stratum V2, other ideas, which would give miners more control over the block construction. And so then your pie chart doesn't look like three big pools. It looks like a zillion miners. Um, the other thing to mention the would be... The pool is purely there to share the revenue. What's that? The pool would purely be there to share the revenue. Right. It would be there to minimize the variance of yeah. your mining. So the pool would have much less sort of political power. Yeah. It is worth saying that pools can lose hash rate in like real time, which is kind of not the case for validation uh, in proof of stake. Like, for instance, recently, um, what was the pool that was insolvent? Was it Poolin? Poolin, yes. they were insolvent. They lost tons of hash rate almost instantly. We've seen this happen before. So the pools don't have that much power in real life. If How they started misbehaving, up insolvent? I don't know. It's not a very profitable business, weren't you? It is. It, that is another thing about pools, which is which good. Which is why there aren't more of them and it, they're not larger than Yeah, it's are. good for our purposes, yeah. actually, in terms of like uh, avoiding the you know, large points of centralization. Running a pool, you basically lose money doing it. Which, by the way, like maybe you could explain this. It's interesting because it strikes me that it's a great example of economies of scale. You know, you have a piece of software, you, you have a marketing budget, you get people to sign up. If every additional miner who joins, aren't you just taking 1% off the well, top or whatever? It's like, just why is super that not? competitive, though, right? So the, oh, right. It's a race that to the bottom. Yeah. the margin. Yeah. 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 Differentiation. Yeah. yeah. And and some miners often misbehave and like screw over the pools right. in a certain way, depending on how they pay out. The incentives rewards. are kind of misaligned, yeah. Uh, it's, it gets so complex actually. As, as, by the way, models. as a miner who's part of a pool, even someone who kind of understands how this stuff works, it's crazy complicated. It's how so do you wrong, audit right? that the pool is doing what they're supposed to do? It's almost impossible. Yeah, that's actually a great, that's kind of an unsolved problem. Um and there's like paper share and like, you know, it's anyway, we don't have to get into mm. that. Maybe we need better pools. That should be an active I area agree, but R&D. there will be US entities that create OFAC compliant pools. The question is, what do we do then? Maybe. Why have, Why will they? Just just because they, they want to For over- the same reason that any other entity in Ethereum is is complying with OFAC. Because you know? they don't want to take risk. Over- yeah, they don't want to go to jail. Because yeah. <laughs> the, the C-suite is personally liable, you know, for, for and you have strict liability for OFAC. So, so. why aren't they already? Well, um, good question. They might be, actually. There's kind of ways to measure uh, whether pools are uh, selectively excluding transactions. We don't think they are censoring right now. It's hard to measure directly. Right, it's hard to find a thing that doesn't exist, right? Because by definition, like we talked about earlier, like the act of censoring is not including a thing. It's easy to point at yeah. a thing and say you did that. It's very hard to point at a thing and say you didn't do something you were supposed to do. You, you would I mean? want proof. There's an asymmetry there. It's hard to find proof that they're deliberately right. excluding OFAC transactions. Right. It looks like they are including them right now at sort of the normal rate. Not that there's a ton on Bitcoin. I, I think something we didn't touch upon, which could also be interesting, is um, that paradigm opinion piece about how this layer one infrastructure work should be considered neutral, should be no different than operating a telephone network or acting as an ISP, right? In other words, like ISPs are not today 
liable for the packets they transmit if one of their users is sending child pornography or something. That's absurd, right? They're Even, common carriers. They're common carriers. You could probably explain better what that means, but they're not doing, they're not expected to do some form of deep packet inspection or something. So why can't it be the same, right? If you're simply assembling transactions into blocks and publishing them, you're not facilitating because, in some meaningful way, you know, transactions with these sanctioned entities. Yeah. Because Lane, ISPs aren't a existential threat to the revenue stream of the government. I mean, governments have an incentive to control the internet, right? Yeah. Like certain and governments do, right? And and the U.S. government, maybe they they you know they want to change this model, but um, yeah. But with Bitcoin, we route around the government. Well, you know, there's U.S. entities and, and that manage key key points of the infrastructure, and they want to play nice. So I do think Bitcoin will face the same issue as Ethereum eventually. It probably won't be as bad because MEV isn't a thing for now. And so we won't have these like super sophisticated, highly centralized entities that are like doing this block construction work. But we will be confronted with this. Well, but OFAC compliance is kind of like one of those things that people may reluctantly accept. It's that next leap that we fear, you fear, say, with Ethereum, what, what Coinbase or Kraken might censor when somebody knocks on the door, turns the screw on That's them. exactly it. It's well, a slippery yeah. slope. Oh, yes, fact, it's very slope. minor but, in the but, grand but, scheme. Right. But when you look at miners in Bitcoin, you know, they may become OFAC compliant. What is what is the different scenario for Bitcoin when when the slippery slope hits, when it's something beyond OFAC compliance? You know, can those, I mean, those miners can say no or can't say no or can they be... There was an announcement. Can, we, they, can um, they be like extract, can they be out... Can it be extracted from the system? Is there a different structure that means there's less risk, or could, or, or is it a case of, you know, in reality, uh, how much hash rates in the U.S. If it's ten percent, does that mean okay, you, you might miss one block, you'll be in the one after? That's not ten percent is not so bad, but that's why I keep saying it's a slippery slope because what, where would you draw the line? What amount is safe? Right? This is kind of I, when people what say I'm it's okay, I turn it around and say, where would you draw the line? If ten percent is okay, what I about twenty percent? We what about have 30%? like thirty-five to forty percent in the U.S. Okay. Okay, so you could, you, you know, worst case, you're going to wait an extra couple of blocks. So I just wanted to mention there, which is not so terrible, right? Yeah. But again, it could get worse, and I think it might get worse. There was an announcement a day or two ago that EU sanctions were stepped up on everyday Russian citizens. Sorry. You know, so not just in, in terms of custodial exchanges, but, but non-custodial wallets as well or something. No, no, it's this, isn't it custodial wallets? Yeah, I think it's so, service yeah. providers providing yeah. wallets to Russians. But not just individually sanctioned individuals or entities. It's like all Russian residents and citizens. And I'm just yeah. throwing this out there because yeah. what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is Bitcoin tries to kick all Russians off the network, which is, sounds absurd today, but it might not sound absurd you know, a few years from now if these trends continue. Yeah, so the question is how do we react if the government goes to pools or to miners and asks them to not transact with a certain group? I would hope that by that point, the miners would be more empowered relative to pools, so the pools wouldn't be such an obvious target. We would need something like Stratum V2. What's the holdup of Stratum V2? Just, it exists in sort of the idea world, and it doesn't exist in code, basically. We need to make a show on that. You do. Yeah, you should do. talk to Steve Lee at, uh, at yeah. Spiral. Yeah, let's do that. I'll, we'll message Steve afterwards. There's a few groups working on it, so I'd say that's absolutely critical. Then also, what's the physical reality of where the miners are? They're distributed all globally, and they're not just in one place in the U.S. And we have states' rights in America. So America is not just this one big homogenous thing. So I'm actually kind of okay with the fact that there's a lot of miners in the U.S. because they're on all these different states, and they're in some states that probably if the federal government came in and said we're like commandeering your miners, the states would be like, screw you. 
Texas. Texas. Yeah, good luck. Come on. Tech <laughs> Come at me, bro. Tech Cruz won't be having that. Bitcoin is a state's rights issue, okay? So maybe it'll be the cause of the next civil war, right? But uh, yeah, so like if, if all Bitcoin mining was in China still, yes, China is effectively one sort of like legal place. America is 50 different, you know, jurisdictions. So that's kind of why I'm less worried about it. But we still have to be mindful of this stuff. I mean, 51, we're really uh, subservient of you over in the UK. Oh, with the UK. You could add Canada to the mix too. Yeah, yeah, 52, yeah. As long as Trudeau's there. Yeah. Okay, right. In terms of, before we start to kind of wrap up, is there anything I've not asked you or anything we've not covered here that we should have? Because really... Where I want to get to is what is this? What has this kind of taught us about uh, the future direction of Bitcoin? What people should be focusing on with Bitcoin, both in terms of the development of Bitcoin and the growth of Bitcoin as a code base, but also in terms of like how the community should be thinking about, like how how the community should be thinking about what it does to protect people working in Bitcoin, and what is it to us? Yeah, I would say I. There's not too much to worry about from a censorship perspective today. In Bitcoin. In Bitcoin. However, if Bitcoin becomes a richer environment with more on-chain transactions that are more complex than the ones we have today, I do think that introduces a significant centralization vector in the form of MEV, which is a very specialized activity. So the more you insert layers into the stack, which are super specialized, which a small number of entities are doing, then you are more beholden to the government because they only have to interface with a small number of entities. The other thing to be worried about would be if exchanges start buying Bitcoin miners. I think this will happen because they may want to give their clients priority access to the blockchain, right? So they'll recognize, hey, you know, like maybe it'll be a value-added service for us to manage our client experience, their interaction with the blockchain. Exchanges now run validators, so they're basically kind of doing this for their clients already on the proof-of-stake chains. Why wouldn't they do it on proof-of-work? I think this cycle you'll see exchanges buying big miners so they can guarantee access. They're on sale right now. So Hmm. Exactly, they're going bankrupt. So that would be something to be nervous about, actually. It makes sense from a business perspective for an exchange, but at that point you do have the convergence of the large amounts of financial capital and the validation, which is sort of the dangerous spot. So that's something which I don't see people talking about because it's not happening yet, which I actually would be nervous about if it does happen. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a natural trend. Um, as Nick was saying, if I am an exchange, I can offer cheaper fees, fee discounts, free transactions, faster inclusion. I can offer um, front-running protection. Like like this. Like these, these have already happened, by the way, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, which which I can't do if I don't have that infrastructure. And so that is another inherent centralization factor. I think we should take these centralization vectors very seriously. Because it's very obvious there's only going to be a handful of global exchanges in the future. They already all have staking businesses. What if they then also move into mining once they realize Bitcoin's not going away? The big exchanges basically like sort of don't care about Bitcoin. They think it might, you know, just be an anachronism. If they realize it's sticking around, they start buying miners because they want the same thing they have in proof of stake world, which is priority access to the blockchain. I'd be nervous about that. And we should be what encouraging miners to be considering distributing their operations a little bit more globally. I think it happens naturally because of where energy is, because the ASIC supply chain is less controlled now. 
But really because cheap energy is available sparsely throughout the globe. Right. So that is sort of a very helpful like state of affairs. It's kind of the same with gold. The number one country for gold mining is China, I think, with 11%. Gold is very well distributed in the Earth's crust. So it happens all over the place. There's no one place where all the gold is. Think of Bitcoin and energy the same way. There's lots of little hot spots of cheap energy globally. You know, whether it's flared gas here, a hydro mine there, nuclear plant that's underutilized there. So that's one of the things that gives me great cause for optimism. The literal physical infrastructure of Bitcoin mining is getting more distributed sort of by the day. Hmm. This incidentally is not true in proof of stake, but that's, we already covered that. Hmm. Uh, very useful. Um, I'll be interested to see the YouTube comments. There are probably lots of uh, little tiny clips that they've uh, put together. They've got nothing to do with what we said. To Taken totally out of context. People are going to complain that, that you did an Ethereum episode. Well, I've done, we've, how many have we done in the past? Three or four? Yeah, yeah. three or four. Well, I mean, we've done three or four with Lame. No, we've done two with Lame. We've done two with Vitalik. Um, have you really? Yeah, yeah. We did one with Vitalik and Samson Mao, and then I did another one with Paddy, Vitalik, and Andrew Polstra. I remember that one. That it just didn't great. work out how I wanted it to. Uh, I actually I agreed with Vitalik to do a third one, but only on Bitcoin. Just me and him oh, talking about Bitcoin. That'd be fun. Yeah, but... Um, I think he's going to evolve his views on Bitcoin, actually. I think he'll come to see it as a very useful kind of bulwark. Yeah. I'd love to have that conversation with him, so hopefully one day, but um, he closed down his email address, so I can't get hold of him. Um, but yeah, no, we will, yeah, it is called What Bitcoin Did, but in making a show about Bitcoin, you sometimes have to understand other things where they've, you know, what lessons have been learned from other projects. Um, There's a lot of lessons to be learned here. I mean, course. you have to look at the context, and I just, I said this a couple of times, but just to reemphasize it, the transition on Ethereum's part to proof of stake just further it makes the move even further apart. You know, Ethereum has its roots in Bitcoin in many ways, right? Yeah. And it's 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 now maturing and kind of it's like, you know, the child, it's like going off in its own way and and, and growing into a totally different person than, than its parent. And I think this is actually really good for Bitcoin because it just offers this really strong counterpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to understand and to learn about. We, we made well, kind of a half Monero show. We made a show about privacy, mm. understanding that, you know, it, this is still a fundamentally a Bitcoin show. And uh, yeah, that's what we cover. But this is useful for me to see and understand. I'm sure there'll be people out there complain. The same people complain about every episode I make. Um, the if bigger, they're not complaining, you're not. You're, not, you're doing something. The wrong. bigger pool of knowledge you you tap into, the, the more educated you become. And also, it's just good to see my friends. So, uh, can I get a final final word in? Yeah, of course. As long as you're not shitting some shit going. <laughs> What are we going to call this show? A Taylor, a Taylor Two Shitcoiners. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> I um, can't believe I'm a shitcoiner now because I just I mean, did what one have, what thing have you wrong. become? <laughs> if you care about privacy and censorship, which you should, you should really set up and pay attention to what's going on here because this is a big fucking deal. That's all I wanted to say, right? Like you should like Bitcoin's killer. Ethereum's killer feature is is composability. We talked about that. I think. We'd probably agree Bitcoin's killer feature is things like censorship resistance. And it's kind of okay today, as Nick said, but uh, the well, the warning bells are sounding and we're kind of seeing this stuff happening in Ethereum and it is a slippery slope. So sit up and pay attention and um, you know, figure out how, how you can contribute to making the network more decentralized, period. Completely agree. Any closing thoughts, Nick? No, fully agreed. I think probably the number one thing that Bitcoiners, regular Bitcoiners can do would be to advocate for a Stratum V2 yeah. or variants of that idea. Basically decentralizing block templating in Bitcoin 
that's the number one thing. Yeah, we will st- we will, we will get in touch with Steve Lee. We will. Well, I mean, we're up that way soon, so we, hopefully we can speak to him about that. And like I said, I know Max Corallo talked about it before. Was it his proposal or was that a different proposal? Um, that was hash something. He had a proposal for something, but yeah. Anyway, we we will cover that. Like, but appreciate you both coming in. It's third interview of the day. I'm a bit tired. <laughs> We're gonna have to edit that bit out where I couldn't even construct. <laughs> I couldn't construct a block. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. All right, guys. Good to see you, man. Good Likewise. You Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, what are you making of that? Did you enjoy that? Thank you for listening to what Bitcoin did. I think Lane and Nick did a great job there of having a balanced view of the trade-offs between proof-of-work and proof-of-stake and some of the risks that come with proof-of-stake. So if you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. I will reply to your emails, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I'm sure I'll have them both on the show in the future. They are a couple of my favorite people to interview. Um, outside of that, just so you know, my football team is still crushing it. We're still top of the league. We've still only lost one game in the league. It's looking very good. I'm very excited. Got a few tough games coming up, but hopefully we'll still be top by Christmas. And then maybe we can, maybe we can start having to think about promotion. All right. I hope you all have a great week and I will see you all on Friday. 